Hey, welcome to finally, finally, the episode that will end the French war. Well, technically we'll keep on with the war for like two minutes of the next episode, which will, I think, also be the last episode of this show for a while, but only two minutes. The good thing about it, though, after spending way too many hours on six or seven months, is that that next episode will get us up to at least, I think, hopefully 1960. I'm off to Ann Arbor in just three weeks now, but like I've said in the past, I will keep the site up and the shows up, and if episodes drop offline as WordPress is wont to allow, I will pop them back up again, with the benefit of much faster internet. At the very best, we're going to be on hiatus for a very long time, but if you've got any interest in seeing Safe for Democracy back on air, evangelize to your friends. If I end up doing any work on the show while I'm at school, it will probably be in the short show slash re-recording the Guatemala series so it's a little less dour and self-serious variety, and I'll let everyone know if and when that comes down the pipe. Otherwise, keep doing what you've been, or more accurately, mostly haven't been, doing all along. Rate, review, subscribe, share, and reach out. Alright, I'm Jonathan Coombs, we're talking about Dien Bien Phu and the last days of the French in Indochina, and this is Safe for Democracy. America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas? But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Across the world, we're hunting down the killers and we're showing them the definition of American justice. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form of Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi people. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. So, to get us re-situated in the case that you're not binge-listening these things, which would be pretty tough in any case, let's recap just a bit. Henri Navarre arrives as the new commander-in-chief in Indochina halfway through 1953. The Americans demand from him a plan to win the war. That plan does not come together, and one minor element of it, a decision to reoccupy the valley of Dien Bien Phu in the misty northwestern highlands of Vietnam, ends up becoming the only important element of it. The French drop paratroopers into Dien Bien Phu on November 20th, 1953, in Operation Castor. Castor and Pollux, not Castor for Beaver. The garrison in the valley is supposed to block Jap's lines of supply stretching from his base areas above and below the Red River Delta all the way to his offensives in Laos, given that Dien Bien Phu sits right in the middle of both of those lines. 
The French garrison is supposed to mount offensive operations all around the valley. The garrison is supposed to use the aggression of its ex-cavalry commander, Colonel Christian de Castries, to keep from being surrounded. The garrison does neither of those things, largely because Navarre refuses to give his northern commander in Hanoi, General René Cogni, the resources to fulfill those missions. In the end, Dien Bien Phu ends up doing what Navarre sort of hoped would be its mission and Cogni feared would be its mission, which is drawing Jap into a protracted siege and open battle. The Communist Party's Central Committee decides to take the bait on the 6th of December 1953, and Jap begins slowly swinging nearly 50,000 combatants and tens of thousands of coolies and other support staff around towards and then into the area around the valley before moving there himself. By early January, the French are totally hemmed in. By the end of that month, even the most major of French operations aims only at the hills immediately around the post. By the end of February, Jap has achieved one of the greatest logistical miracles in the history of warfare. Not modern, not ancient, but all of warfare, over all time, and constructed 500 miles of camouflaged, operable roads, hundreds of tunnels and dugouts, lifted huge numbers of artillery pieces onto the hills around the valley, sighted his guns on the French, kept all this concealed for the most part from French intelligence, and in general made every possible preparatory step in and around Dien Bien Phu. The French, despite the best efforts of engineering commander Major André Soudrat, have not fortified their own positions anything like commensurate with Jap's preparations and armament. The artillery commander in the fort, the one-armed Colonel Charles P. Roth, has remained confident up until the very last minute before Jap launches his attack that his guns will destroy Japs in immediate counter-battery fires. On March 13th, the French catch wind that Jap will finally move in, and he finally does. An all-out attack on Beatrice submerges that point within a couple of hours, wiping out the defenders' most important fortification and exposing the airfield they need to survive to direct artillery and anti-aircraft fire. The attack on Beatrice goes through in large part because Jap is able to deliver massed artillery and Pirot finds himself totally unable to respond. He has no idea where the enemy shells are coming from, and counter-battery fires manage to negate exactly none of the Vietnamese bombardment. When a pale dawn breaks over Dien Bien Phu on the 14th of March 1954, Beatrice is gone. An entire battalion of the elite 13th Foreign Legion Half Brigade has disappeared, and there is no indication that Jap won't be able to do it again and again and again. <laughs> Battle to the death is joined at Dien Bien Phu, an isolated French Union stronghold deep in communist-held territory of Indochina. The battle is at its height as French forces repulse repeated fanatical charges by 40,000 Reds. Supplied by airlift reinforcements, the garrison, outnumbered four to one, kills or wounds 10,000 of the attackers, but sustains severe losses of its own in the fiercest single battle of the Eight-Year War. With no let-up in sight, the wounded are tended but must remain since the evacuating airstrip is knocked out. Foreign legionnaires bear the brunt of the attack as Red prisoners are brought into the already crowded post. Let's get a little bit of geography in hand, too, because we're going to pick up right where we left off when we do pick this back up. Remember in the first place that there are maps in the show notes. And remember in the second that Dien Bien Phu is a valley. It's long, 10 miles north to south, and fairly narrow east to west, although it opens up in the middle about 5 miles across. 
The maps are better than the hand thing, so use those if you can, and especially draw one of your own if you want to. But remember that if you make a peace sign up in the air with your left hand, back of your hand towards you, and you stick your pinky out at the same time, the knuckle of your pinky, the last knuckle of your pinky is Anne-Marie atop its crescent-shaped hill, with a garrison of unreliable Thai irregulars. The nail of your middle finger is Gabrielle, held by a strong battalion of Algerian rifles. Gabrielle overlooks the Pavi track, which is your middle finger, and it keeps going down south about where the bones of your middle finger go back into your wrist, and it continues in the middle of the valley, that is the middle of your arm, down to your elbow, which is the end of the valley. Your index finger is road 41, and the last knuckle of that finger towards the nail is Beatrice, now occupied by Jap's Viet Minh troops. Below your index along the right side of your fist are the Dominiques and Elians, each occupying some low hills between the main French center of resistance in the middle of your fist and the mountains that end the valley to the east or right. From the knuckle of your middle finger out towards the base of your pinky are the Hugettes, the second line of defense in the west, backing up Anne-Marie on the flats. Road 41 and the Pavi track converge in the middle of the valley and between them lies the Namyum River. And if we follow all three of those things way down to your elbow and they stay together left, right, and center, down to your elbow, there is Isabel, another strong point, large and lonesome. Whew, that's geography. And, finally, there are two more characters we're going to be worrying about a lot in this show, alongside Commander-in-Chief Henri Navarre, Northern Commander René Cogni, Commander in Dien Bien Phu, Colonel de Castries, Artillery Commander Piroth, and Engineering Head Sudrat, not to mention Viet Minh, Commander-in-Chief Vo Nguyen Giap. Those two people we're worried about are Major Bigeard and Lieutenant Colonel Langley. Pierre Charles Albert Marie Langley was the chief of the Gap 2, the second airborne group, and head of all of the paratroopers in the fortress. As Fall writes, quote, In almost all respects, Langley was the opposite of his commander. De Castries, though Paris born, originated from the strongly Latinized parts of southwestern France. Langley, who was born in 1909 in Brittany, looked, with his angular features over a wiry body, every inch the Celt. De Castries affected not to be serious even in the most difficult situations, and never lost his exquisite courtesy. Langley, who was never known to refuse a stiff drink, was also famous for his towering rages and his unflagging devotion to his men. De Castries had approached his army career as a dilettante and had risen through the ranks. Langley had passed the stiff entrance examinations to the French military academy at Saint-Sur, and was, therefore, a full-fledged regular. De Castries had chosen to serve in a quote-unquote fashionable cavalry regiment, never too far from the flesh pots of Paris. Langley had, with equal deliberation, chosen what was probably the loneliest military assignment the pre-war French army had to offer. The Mayoristes, the prestigious corps of camel riders that patrolled the Sahara Desert, engaging in constant scrimmages with marauding Arabic tribes. In the Mahirist units, a young French officer would often spend months in the open desert with his native camel riders without ever returning to a fixed base, facing constant hunger and thirst, as well as sandstorms and the risk of being drawn into a deadly ambush by the desert-wise tribesmen." Unquote. Lang Le, like nearly everyone of consequence at Dien Bien Phu, fought in the Second World War for de Gaulle with the Free French and then shipped for Indochina soon afterward. The other man, whose name is spelled in English, Big-Eared, but who will be appearing more and more, so I should probably start pronouncing his name correctly, which I know now is correctly, because now I have checked, Bijard. His name is Marcel Bijard. Major Marcel Bijard was the head of the 6th Colonial Parachute Battalion. He was on the caster drop with the 6th, but his unit left pretty soon afterwards. And while he won't be back in the valley until the 16th of March, he is, like Lang Lei, one to keep an eye on. Bijard started in the army not as an officer, but as an enlisted man. 
Like many of the other men at Dien Bien Phu, he had fought in the Second World War as a maquisard, a resistance commando far removed from the structures and old-time sensibilities of the French Army's normal staff officers. He had been promoted and promoted, escaped from the Gestapo, promoted and promoted, and given the 6th BPC, the 6th Colonial Parachute Battalion, once the war had begun in Indochina. You will recall from a while back that Bijard, who at the time I was calling Big Eared, dropped into Toule with his battalion during Jap's Northwest Offensive, assigned to a suicidal holding action that let the rest of the French troops in the area escape across the Black River. Bijard and his men had fought in virtually every major battle of the war, and Bijard was by all accounts incredibly intense. A soldier's soldier, one of the most decorated Frenchmen ever to take up arms, wounded over and over again leading from the front, and mythologized as Pierre Noël Raspighi in The Centurions. We'll be hearing plenty about Bijard in the future. Now, returning to the swing of things in the history that we left off last episode, on the morning of March 14th, and through the rest of the day, the guns aimed at the now-occupied Beatrice went silent, and another set opened up on the airstrip, which the defenders now knew had been vulnerable even when all the outlying strongpoints had been in French hands, something that Jap had not wanted to reveal before his first attack. In short order, the Viet Minh commander's artillery destroyed Dien Bien Phu's six Bearcat fighter bombers, its control tower, and the radio beacon that planes needed to find the base at night or through cloud cover. Before nightfall, Jap also took out the last cricket reconnaissance plane, essential to the function of Piroth's artillery, meaning that one day after the battle had been joined, Dien Bien Phu had lost all of its local air support, and its fire support had been entirely blinded. That daytime bombardment was only the first step. At six in the evening, a heavy mortar barrage began to fall on Gabrielle, on the nail of your middle finger. Shortly after, another battery of 105s opened up on the point, Jap showing the French again that his ability to move his artillery uphill was far beyond anything the defenders or the planners in Hanoi and Saigon had ever imagined. By 8 o'clock that evening, the bunkers of the outlying 4th Company had collapsed, taking their commanding officer with them. Despite that Gabrielle had been recognized as the best fortified position in the camp, there just had not been enough material or men on hand to allow it to stand up to this kind of pounding. And the Viet Minh, whose trenches had crept almost all the way to the wire in previous nights, now began to filter into the point. While all of this was going on, the first of Dien Bien Phu's airborne reinforcements was arriving on the scene. Their planes buffeted by incoming enemy flak and the explosions of friendly artillery, and their members scattered more widely by their light weight, something that Fall writes like a half-dissertation about in Street Without Joy. The 750 men of the 5th Battalion of Vietnamese paratroops dropped into Dien Bien Phu. Heralding nights to come, the drops scattered all over the base, men falling into wire, minefields, anywhere but where they were supposed to be, and they spent most of the night picking their way across the base under fire to assemble finally in the early morning at the main center of a resistance. Back on Gabrielle, Major de Mechenem, commander of the battalion of Algerians occupying that point, realized that the Viet Minh creeping through 4th Company's position at the front were the major threat to the strong point, and he ordered a counterattack led, fall notes, by a Sergeant Ruzik, who had been getaway driver to France's most notorious gangster, Pierrot Le Fou, before deciding to ship out for the war when the police started to catch up to his boss. The sergeant and his men cleared the infiltrators out of 4th Company's lines and re-established a perimeter at the front of the hill, securing Gabrielle for the moment. Jap, finally in a position in which he had not only more men but more firepower than the French, pulled back at 3 in the morning and opened up on the position again, this time with even more guns, before committing a full 8 battalions, that is 8 times more men than the French had had at the beginning to the next attack. 
By 4 in the morning, Gabrielle was requesting defensive fires from Piroth in the middle of the strong point, along its last line of defense, first and fourth companies at the crest of the hill having been totally submerged. At half past four, Demekinem was consulting with his battalion staff, again all in the same dugout, when a Viet Minh shell pierced the roof and incapacitated all senior leadership on Gabrielle. Fall questions, quote, Why were the leading officers of the strong point in the command post at the same time? The answer was given to me personally by Demekinem, then a colonel nine years later. He said that the meeting of all the senior officers was a matter of sheer chance and was to last only a few minutes. There is an Arabic term widely used in the French army to designate wild luck, baraka. Colonel de Mechanem was to say to me later, I always believed in my baraka. It had apparently run out for Strong Point Gabriel at 4.30 in the morning on March 15, 1954, unquote. At this point, back in the main position, de Castries and the new commander of the central sector of the base, Lieutenant Colonel Lang Lei, formerly head of the 2nd Airborne Group, knew that they had to send a relief force to Gabriel, or it would disappear in the same way that Beatrice had the previous night. There are and there will be plenty of recriminations to go around regarding Dien Bien Phu, and the composition of this relief force makes up one of them. Lang Lei selected not the 1st Foreign Legion or the 8th Colonial Paratroops, both part of his own beloved Gap 2, but the newly arrived 5th Vietnamese Parachute Battalion to make up the bulk of the attackers. The 5th were dead tired. They had been on alert in Hanoi all day, dropped into the base in the evening, and spent the night under fire hustling towards the main center of resistance. They were also, obviously, the unit least familiar with the valley. For whatever reason, whether affection for his own paratroops or sheer chance or something else, Lang Lei saddled the 5th Vietnamese with the mission, giving them a company of more experienced legionnaires in front and a few tanks alongside to support. They moved off towards Gabrielle at 5.30 in the morning, an hour after de Mechanem and his staff had been knocked out, and headed up the Pavi track towards the embattled strongpoint. Past the airfield, which, remember, is by the knuckle attached to your hand on your middle finger and about halfway up your middle finger towards the strong point, the relief force fell into a well-prepared ambush. If we think back to the previous shows, we know that this has been standard Viet Minh tactics for nearly a decade now. Cut off a French force and then hammer whoever comes to the rescue. The attack stalled, with the legionnaires and the tanks in front barreling through and the Vietnamese battalion mostly hunkering down. By 7.30 in the morning, it was clear that the relief force would not make it to Gabrielle. In the interim, resistance at the top of the hill was beginning to falter. Peroth's artillery fires, called down just in front of their lines, were now falling short and killing the Algerians, rather than the Viet Minh. By 7.30, Jap's forces had pushed First Company's survivors to their last blockhouse, and they surrendered shortly after. Minutes later, the Viet Minh took the wounded Major de Mechanem and his second Major Ka, along with the last elements of resistance on the hill. Some 114 Algerians managed to escape and link up with the relief force, and all then retreated under heavy fire and taking heavy casualties to the main base, arriving around 9 in the morning. Another strong point was gone, along with another battalion. In the dawn, some 500 men were unaccounted for, another 200 captured. Including the losses among the relief force, Fall estimates that the French found themselves a thousand men shorter in the morning than they'd been in the evening. General Vaux Nguyen Jap's losses were also steep but importantly were about on par with the French. Outnumbering the defenders four or five to one, Jap could afford to grind the base down like this, especially considering that in previous sieges, he'd been sacrificing three or four or five of his soldiers for every Frenchman. Morale at the camp was devastated. They'd been digging in, they'd thought, for two months, waiting for the big fight, and happy that it had finally begun. 
and in two nights, Jap had made two devastating successful attacks, bringing both the base and the airfield under surely, shortly, direct fire from their own former strongpoints. Langley laid, probably pretty unfairly, into Captain Botella, head of the 5th Vietnamese paratroops, and Botella in turn purged every officer and non-commissioned officer whose conduct, taking a phrase from fall, quote, had not been above reproach, unquote. They were left to become coolies in the camp. Jap's soldiers, his Bodoy, on the other hand, were elated. The political commissar of the regiment that had finally taken Gabrielle had given its first assault group a red banner from Ho Chi Minh himself, into which had been stitched the motto, to fight and to win. A young Vietnamese sergeant named Tran Nok Doan stuck the flag on top of Demekinem's command bunker early in the morning, after four other men in his platoon had been wounded trying to do the same thing. Thereafter, the Bodoy knew Gabrielle as Doc Lap, a word that we know from previous episodes means independence and freedom. Garrison commander Christian de Castri's staff began to go to pieces in the aftermath of these first attacks. His second-in-command, his chief of staff, Lieutenant Colonel Keller, mentally collapsed and spent the days until de Castries could fly him back to Hanoi, huddled in the deepest headquarters dugout, wearing his steel helmet. Artillery commander Piroth spent the nights of the first two attacks walking through Jap's artillery to the bunkers of the commanders of the units involved, tearfully apologizing for the ineffectiveness of his counter-battery fires. During the day on the 13th, after Beatrice had fallen, de Castries became concerned enough with Piroth's demeanor that he asked his chaplain to keep an eye on the man. Langley, newly in command of the center of the position, saw Piroth later that day and, as reported by Logoval, asked him if he was all right. Quote, we're done for, the artillery chief murmured. I've told de Castries he must put a stop to it all. We're heading for a massacre, and it is my fault, Unquote. On the night of the 14th, while Gabrielle was disintegrating, Piroth went to visit the commander of the northern sector, one Colonel Trancart, a personal friend, and said to him, quote, I am completely dishonored. I have guaranteed de Castries that the enemy artillery couldn't touch us, but now we are going to lose the battle. I'm leaving, Unquote. Piroth left his friend and found Langley for the same reason, just as the attack the parachute colonel had ordered to relieve Gabrielle was falling apart under Jap's unmolested heavy guns. From fall, quote, Lieutenant Colonel Langley, who now had to bear the responsibility for the defense of the whole central sector, had turned sharply and said something to the effect that indeed an explanation for the failure of the artillery would be in order. Without another word, the old colonel, that is Piroth, walked out of the command bunker and over to his own dugout. Being one-armed, he was not able to cock his service pistol, but it was not difficult for him to find a hand grenade in an ammunition box. Probably at dawn of March 15th, Colonel Piroth lay down on his field cot, pulled out the safety pin of the grenade with his teeth, and then held the explosive charge against his chest, unquote. It wasn't just the troops on the outlying strongpoints or DeCastri's immediate staff that was going through their first major trials either. The hospital at Dien Bien Phu, run by a major Paul Grouan, was likewise accepting more patients in less time than had ever been planned for. What began as a tidy underground space with 44 beds for the seriously wounded, because the walking wounded would head back to their posts, a couple of bunkers for surgery, an x-ray room, and recovery soon became something very different. The hospital had been built anticipating an ability to regularly evacuate its residents by air to Hanoi, but that option deteriorated quickly, and as Fall writes, Dr. Groan soon cared for as many as 3,000 men in a space that, quote, became an apocalyptic charnel house in whose dark recesses the wounded would lie in the muck and stench of their own blood and excrement, unquote. 
Hanoi responded at least to the rapidly increasing needs of the hospital, parachuting over the course of the battle two new surgical teams to grow on, another one to isolated Isabel, another x-ray machine, and two complete blood banks. Grawan and his second, Dr. Jindri, spent all of March 13th to 15th stripped to the waist, operating non-stop, amputating 14 limbs the first night and more every night thereafter. Both doctors, though little they knew it at the time, would spend nearly two months like that, shirtless, underground, up to their armpits in gore, desperately working to make the disaster of Dien Bien Phu a little less horrible for its survivors. But for all that, there were a couple of bright spots the day after Gabrielle's demise. Jap sent over a subordinate to propose a temporary ceasefire so that the French could receive 86 of their wounded from the previous night's battle. Of course, even that was a bittersweet moment, as the men went to further overcrowd the hospital. And Major Bijard's 6th Colonial Paratroops managed to drop into the base without incident, the only injury being Bijard's own ankle, which he rolled on landing. But that night, expecting that a similar attack would fall on Anne-Marie and end it in the way that Beatrice and Gabrielle had ended, finalizing Jap's extinction of the outlying strongpoints, all but one of the Thai companies on Anne-Marie dropped their weapons and melted into the jungle. The Thai were too far from home, under conditions too far from what they'd been asked to do, waiting to die for a valley that wasn't theirs, and they left for their villages across the mountains. While the French contemplated using Bijard's newly arrived battalion to replace the Thai on Anne-Marie, by mid-morning it was too late, Japs Bodoy having already moved into the empty point on top of Anne-Marie's hill, leaving only Huguette's positions in the flats between Jap and the main center of resistance. You'll recall from last show, too, that the manuals say that strong points should reinforce some natural feature of the terrain. Anne-Marie's Hill was that feature. Hugette was an amorphous grouping of different independent points on the flat ground, reinforcing nothing, overlooked by Anne-Marie. The Viet Minh now held the heights in the west. Jap, for his part, summed all this up thusly. Quote, on his side, the enemy suffered heavy losses, having two picked battalions put out of action, one battalion disbanded, and losing all of the northern subsector and the key outer posts in the northeast. The greatest anxiety of the enemy was not that his comparatively strong fire positions were not only partially destroyed, but proved of little effect. He was not able to use the anti-artillery tactics to annihilate our artillery positions. Moreover, the central airfield, whose safety was badly needed to land reinforcements, food, and ammunition at Dien Bien Phu, was taken under the fire of our artillery. But the greatest failure of the enemy was that he had underestimated the situation, thinking that we were able to annihilate only isolated posts defended by about one battalion, and not to wipe out the resistance centers made up of many posts lying in such a strong, fortified, entrenched camp as Dien Bien Phu the more so since these resistance centers were defended by the most seasoned units. He underestimated our small and weak artillery, but after the first combats, he was awe-stricken by the power of our heavy guns and anti-aircraft guns. A few days later, the colonel commanding the enemy heavy artillery units at Muang Than committed suicide, unquote. All of, all of which is true, it's just, that's the two paragraphs of anything that was even close to compelling, the rest of it being like long lists of ABC and bullet points and all sorts of other stuff. I want to give you more of what Jap has written. It's just not its just not that interesting to hear. And it never talks about, and I understand why it doesn't, but it never talks about the personal experiences of Viet Minh soldiers on the other side, which is what I want to use to balance the French. And I just, I, what I have is Jap. And I'm, I'm sorry, guys. Anyway, these first attacks had finally broken the limited optimism at General Cogney's offices in Hanoi. Cogney told a group of his staff and two reporters off the record that he'd been telling Navarre for months that Dien Bien Phu was, quote, nothing but a mousetrap, unquote. 
uh, drawn from fall. Cogni managed the press much better than his commander Navarre, and for all that Dien Bien Phu was Navarre's plan, there was shared responsibility there, and this was Cogni's first attempt to shape the conversation around whose fault it really was, a battle that I think he largely won after the war. Cogni fired off another note to the commander-in-chief, telling Navarre that the situation in the valley was a disaster waiting to happen, and that he would need three mobile groups ready to rescue the garrison in eight days, should the need arise. That was a problem, given that the enemy had, in the Red River Delta alone, within the Delatra line, 50,000 regional militiamen, around 15,000 local troops, and something like 21,000 regular soldiers of the Viet Minh. Most of Cogni's troops, meanwhile, were tied down in fixed defense, which had obviously not prevented those penetrations, leaving only a handful of mobile groups, which constituted the real effective forces in the Delta. If Cogni lost three to relieve Dien Bien Phu, the Delta and maybe Hanoi itself would likely be overrun by Giap's Viet Minh. Cogni called on Navarre to cancel Operation Atlant in the south in order to save men for the fighting in the north, something that we know already Navarre was unwilling to do. The commander-in-chief waited two weeks and then sent this note, quote, I fully understand your viewpoint, but cannot take it into account, unquote. As Fall writes, quote, Obviously, communication between both men had, for all practical purposes, already broken down. The news magazine of the screen. Living glimpses of history in the making. Presented as a public service by Standard Oil Company. of triumph in Paris, French Premier Laniel is roughed up by communist demonstrators. Defense Minister Plevon is jostled too by the mob, denouncing the proposed European defense community. Fanned by red propaganda, passions flame and tensions mount in France. In Indochina, an aerial counterattack is mounted to save Dien Bien Phu, reeling under the most savage communist onslaught of the war. Over the surrounded garrison, ammunition, guns, and other supplies are dropped to the heroic defenders under orders to fight to the last man. Paratroops hit the silk to reinforce the beleaguered fortress. Strategic pawn in the biggest battle of the war. Jap at this point had completed the first stage of his plan for Dien Bien Phu. All three outlying strong points that we had to learn last show, Anne-Marie on the pinky, Gabrielle on the middle finger, and Beatrice on the index, were in his hands. What was left was Dien Bien Phu's second line of defense. It's just your fist now. Along the leftward knuckles down to the middle of your fist, it's the Hugettes holding the flats and loomed over by the lost Anne-Marie. South of them, also on the west or left side, it's Claudine, which we didn't talk about last show, which is, I guess, sort of the, you know, the sort of left and bottom of your fists, but it's closer in towards the, towards the main center of resistance. Anyway, between those two sets of points holding the entire west of the fortress, Hugette spreads a little farther out and protects the airfield. Claudine, closer in, ends up holding most of the hospital, which Major Sudrat's engineers will spend the next two months expanding into a labyrinth of underground chambers and tunnels. 
On the right side of your fist, it's Dominique and Elion, perilously close to the Viet Minh-held hills around the valley. Isabel was holding up just fine for the moment to the south, but supply runs from the main base ran into more and more trouble every day as Jap's troops began cutting trenches across the road between them. Picks and shovels could be heard from every French position, day and night, as Jap proceeded with his plan. Before moving on that second line of defense, he would fill the valley with coolies, expanding the vast network of communications trenches, bunkers, and artillery positions onto the newly taken strongpoints and down into the valley, creeping up to the next line of wire. The French, meanwhile, got less and less use out of their planes. Flak set up on Gabrielle, Anne-Marie, and Beatrice, along with other batteries along the perimeter, and even in the flats out to the west, made each flight over the valley ever more dangerous. Jap's artillery, meanwhile, now had an unobstructed view of the airfield, and in short order destroyed what was left of Dien Bien Phu's resident aircraft. On the 19th of March, the French made an error that destroyed their ability to evacuate the wounded. While the Viet Minh had at first kept from firing on Red Cross-marked medical evacuation craft, on that day the French used one of those medical helicopters to fly a couple of downed fighter pilots out of the base, and Jap thereafter directed his gunners to fire on all craft, destroying two helicopters that day and making a landing for ambulance aircraft nearly impossible. Which is to say, by the rules, if you're going to use those Red Cross-marked aircraft and hope that the enemy doesn't fire on them, you have to only put wounded people on them, not shuttle down pilots who can still fly from Dien Bien Phu back to Hanoi if they are desperately needed. Sunday, the 20th of March, was mercifully quiet for the French. De Castries had fired off a telegram to Hanoi the day before expressing the delicate nature of the situation of the valley and asking for massive reinforcements. On the 20th, Cogni replied to De Castries with a five-point memo, quote, 1. Above all, one must keep in view the success of the battle. 2. An airborne group, which means three theoretically 750-man airborne battalions, is being speedily activated, but its commitment must be reserved to the exploitation of the success. 3. The only immediate possibility is to reinforce you by one battalion in order to compensate your losses suffered during the counterattacks. But even the dropping of that battalion can only be permitted on the condition that the integrity of the fortified camp be guaranteed. 4. Any strong point upon which the Viet Minh would set foot must be retaken from the enemy on the spot. 5. In the unfortunate and infinitely improbable hypothesis which had been considered, meaning the previous day's message from de Castries about the possible collapse of the defense, an eventual operation for the rescue of the breakout force has been studied, unquote. As Fall writes, quote, Here again, the difference between the situation at hand and its appreciation in Hanoi was striking. A guarantee of the integrity of what was left of the position at Dien Bien Phu was totally meaningless under the circumstances. The dictum to retake any lost strongpoint on the spot also meant very little in view of the vastly superior enemy infantry and firepower that overwhelmed strongpoints Beatrice and Gabrielle, unquote. Now, it's up for debate whether the communique from Hanoi was meant as a real set of directions or merely as a kind of ass-covering device for Cogni to be shown off later on. In either case, Fall notes, it did nothing to buck up the morale of the defenders. Cogni kept up these kinds of messages. Even before the end of the month, landings on the airstrip had become nearly impossible, with some exceptions that we'll get to later on. Cogni, though, kept telling Dicastries to fly stuff in that way. Likewise, he told Dicastries that the defenders ought to build fake gun pits and keep their artillery moving around from point to point, despite that the base was now in full view of the Viet Minh and that Dicastries barely had enough men to hold it, let alone construct all this other stuff. 
With Jap indulging the French in a lull from the fall of Anne-Marie until the end of March, that is, from the 18th or so of March to the end of the month, de Castries collected himself and started ordering attacks again. Now, that sounds dumb, but it is not a dumb idea. In an age before satellite imagery, and in which French airborne photography frequently failed to spot Jap's troops, and even more frequently failed to get the pictures to de Castries in a timely manner, the only way to figure out what the other guy was doing was to reach out and touch him. Likewise, de Castries knew that if he just let Jap build whatever he wanted to, then whenever the hammer eventually fell, it was going to be just as bad as it had been on Beatrice and Gabrielle. So on the 21st of March, the day after that quiet Sunday, Major Bijard took his 6th Colonial Parachute Battalion out of Dominique, where it had been posted, and up Road 41, your index finger, remember, towards the former Beatrice. They left in the late afternoon, looking to find out what was up with the trench works in that direction, and to investigate what had looked to French observers like a massing of Viet Minh troops. By the early morning, for all that Bijard's 6th BPC was one of the three best units in the garrison, maybe the best of them all, and for all that nobody was better on the attack than Bijard, his troops ended up pinned down by the Viet Minh in their fortifications and by artillery fire out in the open north of the base. French guns managed to cut Bijard off from the Viet Minh, and he got himself and the 6th back to Dominique. They had discovered that things were pretty bad up that way. On the 22nd of March, the day after that, responding in part to Cogni's memos urging aggression and in part to his own cavalry predilections, de Castries decided that he was going to clear the road to Isabel. Three tanks, the 1st Legionary Airborne Battalion, and a company of all the French Air Force personnel now stuck in the fortress working as infantry because their planes were grounded or destroyed, headed south from the center of resistance. A battalion of Legionnaires and Isabel's three tanks worked north to meet them. They both hit the Viet Minh position at the village of Ban Co Lai, already a mini-fortress of trenches and pillboxes, then the roadblock, which the French refer to in their dispatches. They broke through, leaving only a couple of dozen Viet Minh alive or uncaptured. But the French also lost 151 men dead, 72 wounded and one missing, all for routine water run. The Viet Minh likewise reoccupied the roadblock that evening, promising an equally difficult foray in the future. On the 24th, two days later, the supply run, reinforced by Bijard's 6th BPC, failed to break through and Isabel was definitively cut off from the main base. The next day, de Castries and Colonel Nico, the air controller for Dien Bien Phu and Hanoi, put their heads together vis-a-vis -vis French air power and the encroaching Viet Minh. What they came up with was Operation Neptune, which carpeted all the hills around the valley with all of the napalm canisters that the French could muster. And that was a fair few, since the Indochinese Air Force had learned that it could roll barrels of the stuff out of the backs of its transport planes, effectively doubling the size of its fighter-bomber force. Unfortunately for the French, and thankfully for the victims of one of the most heinous weapons ever invented, the monsoon was already threatening, and the jellied gasoline did little damage to the soggy foliage. The Viet Minh, who were largely underground when they weren't on the attack, went mostly unaffected, a welcome change from the terrifying punishment they'd been receiving since at least Vinh Yen in the spring of 1951. By the end of March, while Jap hadn't yet tipped into the attack, French operations were limited, largely, to sallying out from their own lines to fill in Viet Minh trenches, which the Bodoi would just dig again the next night. Late March in particular saw daily attacks on the trenches around Huget 6, situated at the tip of the airfield and very lonely out there. Every day the Bodoi's new works threatened to encircle the little strongpoint entirely, and every day companies from the 1st Foreign Legion Airborne Battalion and some of the tanks would go and fill them back in. 
Dicastries, who, to be fair, was not all that used to this kind of slow fighting, first got wise and asked for guidebooks on trench warfare from HQ on the 23rd. I'm just skipping around here a bit in the chronology by theme, but really, you don't have to be super sure of which day is what. We're in kind of an interim between the first big assault and the one that'll come after, and when the dates get important, I'll make sure you know which goes before which, all right? So Dicastries orders that same day, the 23rd, also for the first time, that the strong points build communications trenches between them. So what does that mean? What is a communications trench? Well, take Huget. H6, like I said, was at the tip of the airfield, a little way away along your middle finger. H7 was all the way over at the base of your pinky finger, nearly a kilometer distant. Huget 1 through 3 were all much further back, along the metacarpal of your middle finger, that is, your middle finger as it continues into your hand, and 4 and 5 were just to the west or the left of those. You don't need to remember all those positions, except to say that before this order, none of them connected to each other with trenches. So if you wanted to move from one to the other, if I wanted to say, get some guys from H7 to H6 or vice versa, they would have to cover nearly a kilometer of ground in the open. Overlooked, by the way, by Anne-Marie. Ditto any other two strong points in the entire base. Not good, is what I'm saying, especially compared to the massive works being put together by Jap and his men. Now, while what I said earlier about French air intelligence was true, every once in a while they did manage to take pictures and did manage to get the developed film to Dicastries in the valley. And what they showed in this last week of March was a creeping network of trenches surrounding the French positions on all sides and snaking little tendrils closer and closer towards them every day. Even more ominously, on the 24th, the expedition to clear trenches around Huget 6 found that the last ones had been built within 50 yards of the isolated strongpoint. By that same date, confronted with this commander who had realized three months too late that trench warfare was in the offing, who was ordering these costly, pointless sallies to Isabel, who had, in point of fact, lost all three most important strong points, some of the more junior officers had had enough. Former chief of the 2nd Airborne Group and current commander of the central sector of the base, Lieutenant Colonel Lang Lei, at the head of what came to be known as the Paratroop Mafia, the battalion commanders of all the airborne units at the fortress, marched together with Lang Lei in full combat gear into Dicastri's staff dugout on the 24th of March. Lang Lei informed Dicastri's that from that point on, while Dicastri's would continue to communicate with Hanoi and to all appearances remain in command, Lang Lei would now be taking full control of operations at the fortress. It was not only Dicastri's apparent ineffectiveness. After Piroth and Lieutenant Colonel Keller had had their breakdowns, most of the rest of Dicastri's senior staff had also been wounded or taken to hiding in bunkers. And Dicastri's himself was not unaffected. One observer at the battle remarked afterwards that it appeared that a spring had broken inside the once dashing cavalrymen. Lang Lei, at the head of his corps of wiry, hard-bitten paratroops, was ready to take the situation in hand. Hanoi, which at some point must have realized who was running the show, didn't seem inclined to send one of their own out to take the reins. As Lang Lei wrote in his own book, as cited in Fall, quote, Though I was only a simple paratroop lieutenant colonel at the beginning of the battle, I had directly under my orders 10,000 men, but nobody in Hanoi or elsewhere sought to deprive me of that handsome command. It would nevertheless have been easy to get to Dien Bien Phu with a parachute on one's back, or up to March 29th, even by landing there. I was in the damned valley up to my neck, and I stayed in it to the bitter end." Unquote. Only one man objected to this coup, one Colonel Voyneau, who had arrived just that day to replace Dicastri's out-of-commission chief of staff, Colonel Keller. 
DeCastries threw a glass of whiskey in Voino's face and asked if he or anyone wanted to settle things outside. Nobody stepped forward, Ling Lei apologized, and after a brief moment of unpleasantness, the French command staff, now led by Lang Lei and his parachute mafia, worked in perfect harmony till the end of the battle. Lang Lei and DeCastries and even Voino remained bridge partners until the end. Ling Lei reorganized the defense into just two subsectors, which is good because the early ones do not make sense on the maps. One was east, one was west, and the dividing line was the center of the base. Dominique and Elian on their hills in the east, commanded by Lang Lei personally. Fugette and Claudine holding down the flatlands to the west. Those went to the same guy Lang Lei had thrown whiskey at, Colonel Voineau. Bijard got to be a floating deputy for counterattacks. Whenever a French post went under, it would be Bijard's job to rope enough men together, draft a plan, break through, and reoccupy. The mission in the west, that is, in Huguette and Claudine, was at this point the most important. The airstrip was already nearly unusable, but every ton that landed was another ton for the base. And the airstrip also represented the central parachute landing zone of the base, meaning that as the French transitioned to dropping supplies by parachute, the defenders still had to keep the airstrip and the area around it open. Langley told the Hugettes around the airstrip to, quote, give themselves air during the day and ears at night, unquote, which means to clear out the Viet Minh around the airstrip and give the base breathing room in the day and be ready for the attack at night. The 24th of March ended not with more dramatics, but with another disappointing communique from Cogni and Hanoi. He assured DeCastries, remember, even though Langley is in control now, DeCastries communicates, that Jap was running out of rice, men, and ammunition. None of which was true, and none of which Cogni had reason to believe was true, and as such was a pretty flat attempt to buck up the morale of the fortress. Cogni finished up his message by saying, quote, The rainy season, now close at hand, will compromise his communications, that is, Jap's communications, and will oppose a major obstacle of mud to the development of his field fortifications, unquote. DeCastries and Lang Lei, very much aware that all the main Viet Minh positions were dug into the hills, while all the main French positions, save Dominique and Elion, were on the low flats near the river, knew that once the monsoon broke in full, the exact opposite would be true. The rains have come, and in India that's something worth celebrating. The monsoon, the rainy season, is the lifeline of Indian agriculture, and this year's good monsoon brought out the crowds in Jaipur for the Festival of Tea. This is the day when the Indian farmer celebrates an ample crop and pays homage to Tej, the goddess of rain. The monsoon can bring prosperity or disaster. Too much rain brings floods, too little drought. A good rainy season ensures a bumper crop, and for one day the farmers celebrate their good fortune. The animals used in agriculture, including elephants and camels, play their part in the pageantry. This is a day of joy and merrymaking, a day to savor. For tomorrow, the task of tending the harvest continues, and everyone knows that next year the monsoon may not be so kind. Despite Cogni's cheery messages and Lang Lays' orders to the Hugettes to make space, air contact with the defenders in the valley only got more difficult. Dr. Groan's patients were feeling the problem most acutely now that the Viet Minh were firing on Red Cross-marked medical evac planes. Jap's troops would hold fire until trucks full of wounded arrived at the airfield, and the plane itself had nearly stopped moving. And then they would open up, picking off the plane, the trucks, or at the very least, usually forcing the plane to take off without having delivered or evacuated anything. 
Mid-month, one of the pilots hit on a new idea. A C-47 would fly around above the valley at night as if it were dropping supplies, attracting Viet Minh attention. Meanwhile, another plane would cut all power and glide into the base in the darkness. The strip lit up with a couple of lanterns, keeping the whole operation obscured from observation. From fall, quote, The ruse worked until March 27th, when a parachute flare, fired from a mortar on Huget 6 at the wrong moment, brilliantly lit up the runway and gave away the scheme to the communists. At least 223 wounded had been picked up in this manner and 101 were evacuated by helicopters, providing the sorely taxed hospitals of the valley with at least a brief respite, unquote. On the morning of that same day, the 27th, one Captain Dartigue managed to get his C-47 Dakota on the ground, take up a full load of wounded, get to Hanoi, and make a return journey. But the Viet Minh, getting better every day at tracking the approach path every single plane had to fly, shot him down over Elyon on the approach. Just before 6 in the evening, another C-47 plowed into the ground just west of Claudine. Captain Bourgereau, landing just before nightfall, piloted the last C-47 to leave the fortress safely, barely making his takeoff through a hail of Viet Minh mortar shells. What might have been the absolute last plane-landed delivery at the base came in the early morning hours of March 28th. It was another ambulance plane, and like all ambulance planes, it included a member of the Women's Air Force nursing staff, one Genevieve de Gallard to Robe. The flak was thick when the plane came over the base, just before 4 in the morning. The Viet Minh gunners knew the directions and the heights that the airplanes had to fly to land, and they were nearly as good in the dark as they were in the daytime. They got the plane on the ground despite it all, but found that an oil tank was leaking there on the runway. A whole series of schemes to get the plane airworthy ended at 1 in the afternoon when, just as the plane was about to take off with its load of wounded, a trio of mortars set the whole thing ablaze. The Air Force Major flying the plane, his crew, and the nurse, Genevieve de Gallard Tarub, were now permanent members of the garrison. As Fall writes, quote, She was a modest girl, with blue eyes, brown hair, and a ready smile. To her, Dien Bien Phu was just an ambulance mission that aborted. No one there ever called her the Angel of Dien Bien Phu. This name was given to her by rear echelon press agentry. To the men at Dien Bien Phu, she was known as Genevieve, unquote. Colonel Nico, the Air Force coordinator back in Hanoi, in light of the escalating losses in his small fleet of C-47 Dakotas, changed his daytime drop rules, mandating that while the sun was up, planes would let their cargo go, not at the previous 2,500 feet, but at 6,500, a number that, as the Viet Minh received more Chinese 37mm flak guns, increased up to 8,500 feet. Now, both of my parents have their jump wings, and they listen to this show, and what they know is that if the French position was only a couple of miles across, and the chutes on those supplies were opening at 8 or even at 6,000 feet, then if there was any wind at all, even if the planes were flying perfectly, even if it was half a knot of breeze, those packages were never going to hit the ground where they were supposed to. So the French had to boot the pallets of supplies out of their planes with powder train delay fuses. Ideally, the package falls 7,500 feet or so, then the chute opens. Not all of them did, though, and some opened early, and the pilots were getting more erratic with every new flak barrel on the ground, meaning that every day more packages fell to the Viet Minh, fell in no man's land where the French couldn't get to them, or never opened their chutes at all, impacting within the defender's perimeter like bombshells. In light of all of this, Langley and de Castries knew that the garrison, which was already having trouble meeting its necessary 150 tons per day of supplies, would succumb, and soon, if they couldn't clear up the Viet Minh flak. Just one note here. I, I think a lot of you probably have no idea what I mean when I say flak, and I think some of you have some idea, and then I think some of you who have played a lot of video games have the wrong idea. We have missiles nowadays, but back in the day there were two ways to shoot down planes from the ground. One was bullets of various sizes. 
Now this is really tough. You have to judge from the ground how fast the plane is going, how fast your bullet will make it out there, how far that bullet will fall in the getting there, coming up with some arbitrary place above and in front of the plane, and hoping. You're taking one very fast moving object and one moving several times the speed of sound and trying to make sure that they both occupy the same space at the same time. Difficult. Now the other thing to do was to use flak. Instead of a regular gun, you're firing an artillery piece pointed up in the air, usually a pretty small one, up to 37mm or so, although you can get bigger like the famous German 88s in the Second World War. You set fuses on the shells that you're loading into your artillery pieces, which cause them to detonate after a certain amount of time. With trigonometry, that certain time becomes a certain altitude. Great. You think the plane's about 2,000 feet up, you do some math, you set a fuse for 2,000 feet. The shell surges skyward, and this is the big advantage over bullets, then it detonates, meaning that you don't have to hit the plane, you've just got to get close. Cool. Ideally. But, and this is where that video game comment comes in, there's nothing as simple as pointing a piece of flak at a plane. Not even as simple as pointing a piece of flak at some point above and in front of a plane. The thing that aims the piece is a set of wheels and gears manned by multiple people around it, meaning that aiming is a complex ballet of a whole team of people, while firing is another, with a team loading little magazines of shells into these things. The point is that hitting a plane with a piece of flak is hard, and that even getting to the point where you can try requires a ton of training. Getting to the point where you can actually shoot something down, that much more. The French had been confident for so long, with not terrible reason, that the Viet Minh would just never get good enough to worry about. The Chinese, who at that point had been training their Viet Minh allies for years behind the border, were equally sure that they'd learned everything they needed to. And the Chinese, in the end, were right. So to Castries and Lang Le, waking up to that not only were Jap's troops making the airfield totally unusable, but also interdicting more and more air traffic every day, knew that they had to do something about that flak. So on the 27th, they called Bichard into a command dugout at 7pm and told him he'd be making the longest-range attack in weeks, marching two and a half kilometers out of Claudine to the west. From Fall, quote, With gentlemanly understatement, de Castries said to the barrel-chested major whom he did not yet know too well, Quote, my little Bruno, which was Bijard's alias from French resistance days, you will have to go out and get me that Viet flak out west. When do you want it? Tomorrow. You have carte blanche. Take everything you need and orchestrate the business any way you wish. All right, said Bijard. I'll do it, but I would like to make a few remarks. You'll have to accept some pretty serious losses among the best units you've got, and you are leaving me very little time to put together in black and white an operation of that nature which has to be precise delicate, and rapid, and where everybody has to be fully briefed on his own mission." Bijard set up a desk in the corner and pored feverishly over his maps and papers until two in the morning. Then he walked out to brief his troops. This was maybe the first, or if you count the coup that started it all, the second example of what would become the norm at Dien Bien Phu. Titular rank among the French became meaningless. Anyone who could command did, while quite a few majors and lieutenant colonels found themselves assigned to sit on their hands in their dugouts. Bijard, a major, should have been in charge of a battalion, but here he was on the morning of Sunday the 28th, getting ready to lead an attack of five battalions, coordinate air support from Hanoi, and direct two battalions worth of artillery, itself commanded by a colonel two ranks above him. From Fall, quote, Yet this was Bijard, and the place was Dien Bien Phu, and no one seemed to mind. In fact, at Dien Bien Phu, all senior officers had decided, by common accord, to do away with the normal military formalities, and to call each other not only by their first names, but also by the familiar French, too, unquote. The plan he'd laid out would be tough. Not only was the objective more than a short sprint away, but it was entirely across open ground. 
And what was more, at least three Viet Minh battalions were assigned to the defense of the flak batteries, along with all of the men assigned to work them. From Fall, quote, In the dish plan flat terrain on the west, salvation would lie in total surprise, a short but murderous artillery barrage which the advancing infantry and tanks would follow as closely as possible, a rapid exploitation of the resulting chaos, and an equally quick withdrawal before the enemy could readjust his fire to the new situation. For, as the French had discovered, the only remaining weakness of the communist forces lay in the relatively inexperienced artillery commanders, who were not yet capable of shifting targets rapidly." Unquote. They were likewise helped out by that the Viet Minh's guns were in deep casements or tunnels, meaning that changing their angles by more than a few degrees was a serious effort. Bijard laid out the proceedings for his commanders. His 6th and the 8th Colonial Airborne Battalions would head out first, ready to start the run at 6 in the morning. A battalion of legionnaires under Major Clemenceau would back them up, and the 1st Foreign Legion Airborne would hold in reserve. Practically every artillery piece in the base would fire a rolling barrage in front of the paratroops, shielding them from sight and, hopefully, obliterating Viet Minh resistance as they moved forward. One of the tank platoons would stand by if needed. Japs troops, not in any way expecting an attack so far from the French position, were overwhelmed. Despite Bijard's 6th BPC getting bogged down briefly, by 3 in the afternoon both battalions of paratroops were among the flak and the Viet Minh had fled, leaving a haul of anti-aircraft weaponry. The French collected up the booty, spiked what couldn't be carried, and headed back. Victorious, but, as Bijard had told de Castries, the attack had also been costly. Bijard's outfit lost 17 dead and 36 wounded, the 8th 3 killed and 54 wounded. That week, all told, the garrison had lost an entire battalion worth of troops, and nowhere near enough were arriving to replace them all. Given every piece of information on hand, from the intermittent deliveries of aerial photographs showing the development of Jap's trench system, to the sounds of picks and shovels, some of it now apparently coming from underground, to Bijard's raid on the flak, which he felt had shown the Viet Minh how decisive French force could be in the flats to the west, Lieutenant Colonel Langley felt pretty sure that when the next attack arrived, it would come from the east, running up against Dominique and Elian. So Langley's put his best troops, the various paratroop battalions in reserve behind the front hills there, and reinforced the units actually occupying the positions. At this point, all Algerian and Moroccan rifles, their numbers increased by the 2nd Thai Battalion, not the 3rd, the one that had deserted off of Anne-Marie. Jap, as we know, had been digging trenches and dugouts into the entire circumference of the valley, but Langley had guessed right. The Viet Minh commander also figured that attacking the French hill positions in the east would be his best bet. He also had an advantage of which the French were totally unaware. Out in front of Elian, between the French hills and the ones at the rim of the valley, were two other mountainous growths. I'm not sure why the French didn't occupy them, but they didn't. These were called the Phony Mountain and Mount Baldy. The French, still more confident in their artillery than they ought to have been, declared time and again that Jap's troops would never be able to establish themselves on top of those two hills for fear of French shells. And they were half right. Jap's troops never set up camp on top of either Baldy or the Phony Mountain. They did, however, turn each into a miniature base in itself, each mountain honeycombed to accommodate shelters, messes, ammo dumps, and, worst of all for the defenders, the same kinds of nigh-invisible portholes from which to fire the big guns directly into the French-held hills of Elian. By March 29th, Jap was ready to make his next move, and the French could feel it in the air. These are shots of our planes flying through flak over France and the Low Countries, over Germany and Italy, over Jap Islands in the South Pacific. It looks tough. It is tough. This is no attempt to minimize the danger of flak. 
The gunners are good. Their weapons and methods are good. Good enough to lay a shell on a plane five miles up, flying 300 miles an hour. Positive statements? The men in this room prefer it that way. They've learned that a bomber formation can't just take flak as it comes. They know that these briefing room statements are based on a scientific study, and they understand why evasive action must be flown exactly as planned. So that those of you who do not know can get the same understanding, let's have a good look at this flak business. Enemy anti-aircraft weapons vary from heavy guns like the German 88mm flak, the Japanese 75mm, to small caliber automatic weapons. There is a great difference in methods of fire between the heavy gun and the small caliber automatic weapon. If the gun is aimed directly at the planes at the time the shell is fired, the formation will have moved on almost two miles before the shell reaches their altitude. That's why a gunner always leads his target, like a hunter firing at ducks in flight. The hunter must judge his lead and aim ahead of the duck if he is to hit it. But because of the great altitude and speed of a bomber, the anti-aircraft gunner cannot rely on dead reckoning. His leading must be a careful mathematical calculation. Flying on the deck renders heavy guns impotent. Evasive tactics at this low level, however, will differ greatly from those at high altitude. And with the time of flight so short, gentle 20 degree changes will turn ducks or bombers into clay pigeons. So against light flak, your protection lies in maximum speed combined with all the sudden alterations in the direction of flight that are possible within the limits of your formation. Skid turns, porpoising, corkscrews, side slipping, anything which will keep those gunners guessing. Yes, keep those gunners guessing. But guesswork on your part won't do it. Evasive action. Routes to and from the target. The initial point and the bomb run, all must be planned to take advantage of the latest available flak intelligence. And even more important, all must then be flown exactly as planned. It was right around this same time, between Jap's assault on the outlying strong points and his second attack, that the French back in Paris started hounding the U.S. for an intervention in force, focused on American air power. British Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden, French Overseas Minister George Bideau, and American Secretary of State John Foster Dulles were all scheming with and against each other in the run-up to Geneva in April, and there was plenty of regular contact between Americans and Frenchmen at all levels for these appeals to get made. Chief of the French General Staff Paul Elie took a trip to Washington, D.C. so he could go hat-in-hand to Ike and Admiral Radford, head of the U.S. Joint Chiefs, to plead for more aid. He requested another 25 B-26 bombers, American volunteer pilots to fly them, since the French had none qualified, and tons of parachutes, which the French, in the effort to supply those essential at least 150 tons per day to the garrison at Dien Bien Phu, were burning through. All of their subsequent talks over the next month concerned more and more direct American intervention. The Americans eventually cooked up the idea of Operation Vulture, which was designed around both U.S. concerns about not getting involved on the ground and French requests for more planes and more napalm. Vulture would have involved 350 American planes, mostly big B-29 bombers out of Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, flown by American pilots, conducting a non-stop three-day bombardment of the encircling Viet Minh positions around Dien Bien Phu. Admiral Radford, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, was very big on this idea. He had a guy who'd been out of touch for apparently a very long time's 
faith in the power of American airplanes to defeat people, soldiers on the ground, something that we still haven't really gotten over in our military. Eisenhower, for his part, was leery of going back into Asia when he just wrapped up Korea, but he was also determined to do what he could to keep Indochina on his side of the board. From Logoval, quote, On March 25th, in an NSC meeting that focused heavily on the war, Eisenhower had provided additional grist for Radford's mill. To Secretary of Defense Charles Wilson's suggestion that one might, quote, forget about Indochina for a while and concentrate on the effort to get the remaining free nations of Southeast Asia in some kind of condition to resist communist aggression against themselves, unquote, Eisenhower was unequivocal. Quote, the collapse of Indochina, unquote, he shot back, quote, would produce a chain reaction which would result in the fall of all Southeast Asia to the communists, unquote. A Viet Minh victory would be a disaster, and it was necessary to contemplate new measures to prevent it. Accordingly, the president went on, quote, This might be the moment to explore with the Congress what support could be anticipated in the event that it seemed desirable to intervene in Indochina, unquote. Congress, he declared, was the key. Lawmakers, quote, would have to be in on any move by the United States to intervene in Indochina. It was simply academic to think otherwise, unquote. Inasmuch as Eisenhower, because of his own stature and because of the Congress's fear of being seen as anything but rabidly anti-communist, probably thought that congressional support was going to be a sure thing, this might have been the last time an American president ever really thought he needed any kind of permission, given in good faith, to do what he wanted to do with his toy soldiers abroad. This shift in the direction of an openness towards real intervention in Indochina resulted in a public relations campaign from March into April led by John Foster Dulles to inform the American people about, quote, what was at stake, unquote, in Indochina, and to get the public fired up about the valiant French defense of Dien Bien Phu. Over and over again, in his meetings with lawmakers and briefings before the public, Dulles presented himself as believing, according to journalist Richard Rover of The New Yorker, that, quote, we should not flinch at doing anything that is needed to prevent a communist victory, unquote, including, again according to Rovere, sending in ground forces. Part of Eisenhower's dependence on congressional approval for any move, for which this campaign was laying the groundwork, was that he had only a handful of men to give him a majority in the House, and was only on top by one seat in the Senate, which had one independent swing vote present too. Likewise, McCarthy's charges that the army had been involved in covering up Soviet espionage charges as baseless as all the ones that he'd made about the Democrats in the past, to be fair, had fragmented the Republican caucus. And Democrats, who had been more or less willing to go along with Ike so far, saw him getting ready to unilaterally intervene in Indochina, when he and his whole campaign had been oriented towards attacking Truman for doing the same thing in Korea, and they were less than amused. On March 29th, the same day that Genevieve arrived in the fortress, and the day that the monsoon broke open the heavens and poured down into the valley, Dulles gave a speech that came to be known as United Action in front of the Overseas Press Club in New York. The Secretary of State emphasized Vietnam's outsized importance as a food and resource producer and its linchpin position in the political fate of Southeast Asia. That same old rag. The solution he proposed to the deterioration of Vietnam and the threat of communism elsewhere south of China was a great coalition of the United States, the UK, France, Australia, Thailand, the Philippines, and the Indochinese Associated States to pledge to a collective defense of all of Southeast Asia, to include Vietnam. It was much more ambitious than anything the French or the US had previously expressed. It meant no victory at all for Ho Chi Minh and his government, no possibility of negotiations, unconditional surrender, the only possible result for the Viet Minh. Totally unachievable objectives, in other words. Dulles here, though, was overstating his case. He had already talked to the French and the British about this kind of thing. 
the French who had thoroughly resisted internationalizing the war previously because it would have destroyed their colonial claims to Indochina were fine with it since they figured they wouldn't be hanging on to any of their former colony at this point anyway. The Philippines would come along with us, as would Thailand, and Australia would follow the British lead. So the only people Dulles actually needed to convince, and he'd been working on that since January or earlier, long before he made the United Action speech, were British Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden and Prime Minister Churchill. Both of those men had already made their position very clear to Dulles. They would support American intervention in the war and provide some troops and cash of their own if, and only if, Dulles could show that the administration had approval from the Congress for that action which he did not have. So the speech was out ahead of itself somewhat. Logoval cites some contemporaries as believing that the administration hoped that the speech would buck up French morale, scare the Viets and the Chinese, and most dastardly of all, torpedo Geneva before it had even begun, as we would torpedo it after it was over. From Logoval, quote, end quote, The Eisenhower administration has decided that Indochina will not be allowed to fall into red hands, whatever the cost, unquote, declared the Wall Street Journal the next day. Echoed U.S. News and World Report, quote, Blunt notice is given to the communists that the U.S. does not intend to let Indochina be gobbled up, even if it means big war, unquote. The New Republic, commenting on Eisenhower's approval of the text, likewise said that the address could have only one possible meaning, quote, The administration has decided to do whatever is necessary to win in Southeast Asia. If necessary, it will commit U.S. ground forces, unquote. And in the New York Times, the lead of James Scotty Reston's front-page news analysis read, quote, the Eisenhower administration has taken a fundamental policy decision to block the communist conquest of Southeast Asia, even if it has to take united action with France and other countries to do so, unquote and unquote. In light of this speech, and in light of what was happening in Dien Bien Phu at the time, which we'll get to in a minute here, Admiral Radford convened the Joint Chiefs of Staff on March 31st, looking for an endorsement of the Vulture Plan, provisionally, and of greater U.S. involvement generally. He expected to meet with universal accord from the other Joint Chiefs, and he did not get it. Led by General Matthew Ridgway, the other Chiefs were all more circumspect about the application of air power, of which Radford was an especial fan. If you remember back to two episodes ago, we went through a quick history of the Korean War. A solitary stroke of brilliance at Incheon to one side, and modern military scholarship tends to hold that Johnny Walker was fighting his way up the peninsula just fine even without MacArthur's incredibly risky amphibious operation, General Douglas MacArthur's hubris, arrogance, and decrepitude led to disaster at the Yalu River, condemning a good portion of the UN forces to an icy, hellish demise in the northern wastes of North Korea. General Matt Ridgway, after Truman finally sacked MacArthur, saved the war, and managed it carefully into the peace that we worked out in 1953. Ridgway got to be the chief of staff of the army. Being the head guy of that outfit, he was a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, present at the meeting with Admiral Radford, and much better informed than the other officer about the details of war in the East. As Fall writes, Ridgway was, quote, dead set against the whole idea. As the former commander of United States forces in Korea, Ridgway had a clear idea both of the limitations of air action under such circumstances. In Korea, Operation Strangle, designed to knock out communist communication lines, had been a dismal failure. But he also felt, like Sir Anthony Eden, that the airstrikes would in all likelihood be followed by a commitment of large American ground forces to yet another inconclusive and costly war on the mainland of Asia. A blue-ribbon U.S. Army team had been sent by Ridgway to Indochina earlier that year, and it had returned appalled by the conditions under which U.S. forces would have to operate in case of a ground war there, unquote. Ridgway not only thought or hypothesized, but knew that even if Dien Bien Phu could be saved, and that was a very slim could, with air power, that power could not win the war. 
And once our bombers were in the skies, it would not be long before our prestige was on the line and our boots were on the ground. Admiral Radford came out of the meeting with the Joint Chiefs chastened in what he could ask for, if not in any of his misguided views about the power of airplanes in the jungle. Eisenhower, Dulles, and Radford continued scheming about how to get congressional approval, and on the 3rd of April, House Minority Leader Lyndon Baines Johnson and several other representatives of the opposition, along with a few Republicans and the Speaker Joseph Martin, all trooped to Foggy Bottom to meet with Dulles, Radford, Walter Beadlesmith, and a few other folks. Dulles was up front. They wanted that congressional authorization for use of force. Dien Bien Phu was in trouble, and the French might go down with it. It needed our support, and that was that. From Logoval, quote, Clements asked Radford if the notion of using airstrikes to try to save the French at Dien Bien Phu had the approval of the rest of the Joint Chiefs. No, the Admiral replied. How many of the three agree with you? None. How do you account for that? I've spent more time in the Far East than any of them, and I understand the situation better, unquote, and unquote. Now, that was technically true, at least in the sense that Radford had been in the East longer than any of the other chiefs, including Ridgeway. But in the first place, he'd been at sea. And in the second, he'd never fought a war against a communist army, which Ridgeway had, and recently. And in the third place, he was just, at least on this point, a moron. His combat operations in the East had been against the Japanese in the island operations with the Marines during the Second World War. Islands that had to be taken by men on foot because the Japanese had made themselves impervious to air and artillery. The man had the evidence of war in the East that he needed right in front of his face. It was his only real experience of war, but he refused to see it. Continuing with that meeting, Johnson and the rest of the congressional leadership were quick to ask about the French and the British. As Johnson said, taken from Logoval, quote, We want no more Koreas, with the United States furnishing 90% of the manpower, unquote. The legislators present agreed that they would be on board if and only if Dulles could assure them that this whole deal would be a multilateral effort, not only in theory like Korea, but in fact. Because once American planes and ships were committed, there was no way we could pull out without winning the war, probably with American fighting men. Remember that reasoning later on. Once we're in a war, we can't leave until it's won. The idea of even a coup null, like the French were seeking, was anathema. Wars for Americans were for winning. Dulles was hemmed in. He couldn't get the British to sign on to anything without the full support of his own government, and probably not even then, and he couldn't get his government on board without the full support of the British. A neat little catch-22. So Dulles waffled, telling the congressmen that the British were more gung-ho than they really were without going all out and claiming that they'd already agreed. And that was where the meeting ended. On April 4th, the French government decided to officially petition the U.S. for intervention at Dien Bien Phu and communicated with them to that effect. The request was for heavy bombers capable of two-ton or heavier ordnance. Dulles got the news and added it to a telegram he and Ike were composing for Churchill that amounted to, according to James Arnold, a historian, quote, a request for war, unquote. Logoval, who spends most of his time on Dien Bien Phu wondering if Eisenhower would have gone to war given the chance, wrote this, quote, One must ask again, would a president determined to avoid military intervention in Vietnam send this kind of letter, cajoling, flattering, bribing, bullying, to his old wartime partner, drawing direct parallels between their titanic struggle against the Axis powers and the present threat? Hardly. Would he reference the all-important question concerning fighting troops under united action by saying he did not envisage the need for, quote, appreciable ground forces, unquote, on Britain's or Americans' part? Not likely. Historian Kevin Ruan is surely right that Eisenhower's missive, quote, a model of psychological profiling with barbs aimed at all the prime minister's weak points, unquote, constitutes powerful proof that he was utterly serious about intervention under the right conditions. The letter, sent by cable through the American embassy in London, went out six minutes before midnight. 
Due to problems in transmission, it did not reach Churchill until 6 p.m. the following day, April 5th. The day after that came the reply, quote, My dear friend, I have received your most important message of April 4th. We are giving it earnest cabinet consideration. Winston, unquote. Eisenhower had not, however, abandoned his prerequisite for war-making, congressional support, and that would only come with the British. The British weren't biting, so the Congress wasn't biting, so the Americans had to tell the French that no, as yet, American help was still not coming to Dien Bien Phu. French Foreign Minister Georges Bideau, informed of this provisional no, requested 10 to 20 B-29 bombers, complete with maintenance crews and bombs, to be piloted by Frenchmen. This the U.S. rejected out of hand. The French just didn't have the qualified pilots, and it would have taken months to train them. From Lugaval, quote, As Eisenhower and Dulles no doubt knew, a prearranged colloquy on Indochina was at that very moment underway in the U.S. Senate, a few blocks away. Massachusetts Democrat John F. Kennedy, 15 months into his first term in office and exhibiting the same contradictory impulses on Vietnam that he would later show as president, framed the discussion with an address blasting the administration for its lack of candor about the war. The time had come, he proclaimed, quote, for the American people to be told the truth about Indochina, unquote. While he favored the concept of united action, Kennedy feared where such a policy would lead the nation, quote, to pour money, materiel, and men into the jungles of Indochina without at least a remote prospect of victory would be dangerously futile and destructive, unquote. For that matter, he wondered, would the United States ever be able to make much difference in that part of the world? Quote, no amount of American military assistance can conquer an enemy which is everywhere and at the same time nowhere, an enemy of the people which has the sympathy and covert support of the people, unquote. No satisfactory outcome was possible, Kennedy concluded, unless France accorded the Associated States full and complete independence. Without it, adequate indigenous support would remain forever elusive, unquote, unquote. Kennedy remained supportive of united action, but not of anything short of that bar. In another meeting at the White House, quote, when a plainly skeptical George Humphrey, Secretary of the Treasury, asked whether the Dalesian notion of united action might not eventually lead to, quote, a policy of policing all the governments of the world, unquote, Eisenhower responded firmly. Indochina, he lectured Humphrey, was the first in a row of dominoes. If she fell, her neighbors would soon topple as well. Where would the process end? George, he said, you exaggerate the case. Nevertheless, in certain areas at least, we cannot afford to let Moscow gain another bit of territory. Dien Bien Phu itself may be just such a critical point, unquote, and unquote. This is a big one. This is laying out exactly what would later happen and the justifications that would allow it to happen with us in Vietnam that way. Eisenhower gave a press conference just afterward, laying out the whole domino theory in its ugly entirety for the first time from a president before the American people in just that way. The ideas weren't new, but from here on in, they would be a near permanent gospel for the United States. Earlier, the senator asked, upon what meat does this our Caesar feed? Had he looked three lines earlier in Shakespeare's Caesar, he would have found this line, which is not altogether inappropriate. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. No one familiar with the history of his country can deny that congressional committees are useful. It is necessary to investigate before legislating. But the line between investigating and persecuting is a very fine one, and the junior senator from Wisconsin has stepped over it repeatedly. His primary achievement has been in confusing the public mind as between the internal and the external threats of communism. We must not confuse dissent with disloyalty. We must remember always that accusation is not proof and that conviction depends upon evidence and due process of law. We will not walk in fear one of another. We will not be driven by fear into an age of unreason. 
if we dig deep in our history and our doctrine and remember that we are not descended from fearful men, not from men who feared to write, to speak, to associate, and to defend causes that were for the moment unpopular. This is no time for men who oppose Senator McCarthy's methods to keep silent or for those who approve. We can deny our heritage and our history, but we cannot escape responsibility for the result. There is no way for a citizen of a republic to abdicate his responsibilities. As a nation, we have come into our full inheritance at a tender age. We proclaim ourselves as indeed we are, the defenders of freedom wherever it continues to exist in the world. But we cannot defend freedom abroad by deserting it at home. The actions of the junior senator from Wisconsin have caused alarm and dismay amongst our allies abroad and given considerable comfort to our enemies. And whose fault is that? Not really his. He didn't create this situation of fear. He merely exploited it, and rather successfully. Cassius was right. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good night, and good luck. Back in Dien Bien Phu, where the garrison was getting enough mail and newspaper to hope that the United States or some coalition of the willing might lend them aid before too long, Langley had given orders to make sure that every man on every strong point got a meal of hot food before 6 p.m. on the 29th of March. The French had fair enough intelligence that Jap would be making his move that day, and like on the 12th, they had it right. The lean, hawk-nosed airborne colonel knew that it might be a while before any of those men had something warm in their bellies, those of them that would live to see another meal at all. Out on the Dominiques, they were following Langlaise's orders to the letter. At 6 o'clock, the food was working its way to all the little foxholes and dugouts of D-1, the Algerians and a couple dozen of the 5th Vietnamese Airborne, who were set to replace them later that day, were all just starting to tuck in. And, interrupting that meal, just after 6 o'clock, Jap opened up what must have seemed like every gun in his army and began pouring shells down on the Dominiques, the Eliens, and parts of the central position nearest to them. The French had a handful of half-strength battalions between the two points, and climbing up the slopes behind the Viet Minh's rolling barrage were two divisions, some 18 battalions of Jap's best men. This was the Battle of the Five Hills. Despite their command of the ground in front of them, their wire and their minefields, D1 and D2, the front positions of Dominique, found themselves overwhelmed by Jap soldiers before too long. The Viet Minh had finished their third great preparatory work, and their assault teams were able to leap up from trenches that had penetrated nearly all the way into the French perimeter, bypassing much of their elaborate defense. As on Beatrice and Gabrielle before them, the forward positions of Dominique and Elian were falling apart. It wasn't just the lack of construction wood in the posts. Fall talks about the older Frenchmen in the point relating their experiences on the Somme. There is some point beyond which even the structure of the ground itself doesn't hold up to prolonged bombardment. Solid works quake and liquefy. Tunnels vibrate and melt. Hard earth turns to powder and positions give way. The men lucky enough to survive the collapse of their bunkers and trenches on the lips of the hills that kept the east side of the camp surfaced to dozens, hundreds of Viet Minh already sprinting past them to overwhelm the second line of defense. The Algerians and the reinforcing Thai irregulars on D1 broke almost immediately, and it was, I think, an understandable response. The only living officer on the scene at that point was the aptly named Lieutenant Martinet, a member not of those units but of the first echelon of the relieving 5th Vietnamese Airborne, stranded on the point when the bombardment began. 
Martinet ordered his few paratroops to shoot any man retreating, and with that encouragement, the last man on D1 finished fighting to the death at 10 minutes to 10, nearly four hours after the attack had begun. The situation didn't last even that long on D2, the other of Dominique's outward hills. At 7 in the evening, Bichard radioed Langley to tell him that the Algerians had broken and were running pell-mell for the river. Captain Garandeau, raised, unlike the paratroops, on the aristocratic traditions of the old French army, went down with his post on D2, ceasing to respond to calls at 8 p.m. There were six Dominiques when the night began. D1 sat northwest of Road 41, which cut through the whole area of Dominique at an angle, running top right to bottom left. D2 kept the road opposite D1 in the southeast. The two of them dominated the plain to the hills that ended the valley further east. Both of them loomed over D6, itself right on top of the road between the two hills, and totally indefensible if the Viet Minh consolidated their positions on 1 and 2. D3 was the only other major position in the strongpoint group, and if it gave way behind D1 and D2 along the road, the Viet Minh would have a clear shot to the center of resistance. D3, in other words, was the only point standing between Jap's victory and Langlaise's defeat as of 10 o'clock on March 29th. The only unit holding D3, moreover, was another group of Algerians. Fall writes that the only difference between the French or Legion troops and the North Africans was the quality of leadership that they had, which was in all cases French. I think there was at least one other factor, and that was mission. First, de Castries and then Langley always kept their legionnaires and airborne troops in reserve or stationed on less embattled points, ready to mount a counterattack. There's no doubt that the legionaries and the paratroopers were more elite units, but I think it was also a more grueling mental test to wait for the attack you knew would wipe you off the map, just as it had wiped Beatrice and Gabrielle off the map, versus waiting to mount the victorious counterattack that would valiantly retake those points after, you assumed, their defending troops had valiantly been massacred losing them. All of which is to say, I don't blame the Algerians, facing an enemy emerging from the ground within all of the defenses you've carefully prepared after a bombardment that would make you a brother-in-arms of the French and indeed the Algerians who braved their own inclement weather at Ypres and Verdun. All of that relevant or not, D3 was the key now, both for Jap and for Langley, and the Algerians holding it were in no better spirits after seeing their countrymen plastered on D1 and D2 and then retreating in disarray. There was one other group of men on D3, which General Jap and all of his men would have been happier had it been absent. From Fall, quote, They were the African artillerymen of 4th Battery, 2nd Battalion, 4th Colonial Artillery Regiment. With night closing in, Algerian riflemen fleeing in all directions, and the green-clad waves of communist infantry clearly visible against the flaming outlines of Dominique's 1 and 2, the gallant gunners in their open pits depressed their field pieces to minimum elevation, and began to fire volley after volley point-blank into the massed infantry. And then a miracle happened. The 312th People's Army Division was too close for artillery support from its own pieces. The assault waves halted and recoiled from the blazing guns." Unquote. The forward hills, for the moment, were in enemy hands, despite French attempts to hit them with the big guns in the center of resistance, but Dominique had held. Eliane, in the meantime, was living her own cavalry. On Eliane, by the lights of the flares and the chatter on the radios, the Moroccans holding the heights were very much aware that the units on the front hills of Dominique had broken and fled. Captain Botella, head of the 5th Vietnamese Airborne, had likewise been stranded, and at 7 o'clock reported that although he'd seen some of the North Africans from Elion 1 crossing his own position without their weapons, the Moroccans where he was on E4 were holding up just fine. It bears mentioning at this point that Elian ran from 1 through 4. E1 and E2 were both on hills, both up front. E1 in the north closest to Dominique. 
E2 in the south, unenviably facing the Phony Mountain and Mount Baldy, both thoroughly honeycombed by the Viet Minh, and both sporting 75mm recoilless rifles pointed at Elion II. E4 also on a hill backed up E1, that is, it was between E1 and the main French position. That's why Captain Botella saw his fleeing Moroccans. He was right between E1 and the main position. E3 on the flats backed up E2, that is, it was between, it was, E2 was on the right, E3 was on the left, E3 was between E2 and the main base. And as far as I know, we've got no major characters there as yet. When the Battle for the Five Hills started, and now you see that name, D1, D2, E1, E2, and E4, those are five hills, a force of French foreign legionnaires had moved into the southern half of E2's hill. Moroccans holding an old French governor's residence made up the defense of the north side of that strongpoint. Since 6 o'clock, Jap had kept E2 under a thunderous, murderous artillery fire. It was even worse there on Elian than on Dominique because of the direct fire support of the recoilless rifles poking out of Mount Baldy and the Phony Mountain just in front of them. But by the way, I, I don't know if this is necessary, but a recoilless rifle is basically a handheld artillery piece. It's, it looks like a bazooka, but it's not a bazooka. It fires a shell. It doesn't fire a rocket. The idea is it vents a ton of the exhaust out back so a man can put it on his shoulder and fire it without, you know, uh, being blasted into the ground by the, by the kick. Anyway, there's a bunch of those on Mount Baldy and the Phony Mountain, and they're all getting fired directly into the French position. By 9 o'clock, there was only one corporal and six paratroopers left of the Foreign Legion company that had moved onto the south of E2. At 10 till 10, a French flare shell lit up the saddle between Old Baldy and E2 and revealed a full division of Japs Viet Minh moving up to the French wire. By 10.10, 20 minutes later, the COR lost radio contact with the Legionnaires, leaving the Moroccans in the old governor's mansion holding half a strong point and the still-surviving headquarters of the 1st Moroccan Rifle Battalion of the 4th Colonial Regiment. The night lit up by white and red phosphorus flares, punctuated by an unceasing shattering of artillery. French forces in khaki barely distinguishable from Japs troops in jungle green locked in ugly hand-to-hand -hand trench warfare on top of a hill in the most godforsaken spot in all of Indochina. As Dominique went over to the Viet Minh and the men on Elion's front hills held on in desperate fighting into the morning, Lang Lei back at the main COR had a choice to make. If the two positions continued to hold off the Viet Minh, that is, if the battle didn't end immediately, then the colonel would have to send some of his paratroops in a counterattack to force Jap's troops back off the front strong points and to reinstall the French. At night, though, with the French artillery hampered by darkness and French air power non-existent, Lang Lei felt, drawn from his own book on the battle, that, quote, a night counterattack on the lost positions was impossible. It would be done tomorrow, if there was going to be a tomorrow, unquote. Even before Lang Lei decided on an attack in the morning, two companies of the 1st Foreign Legion Airborne, assigned to the rear positions in Elion in case of just this kind of eventuality, had begun working their way up the hills on their own initiative. They took the southern half of Elion II back from the Viet Minh, and by the time morning finally dawned, they were looking from the ramparts on a carpet of bodies stretching across no man's land all the way to Old Baldy and the Phony Mountain. That, for the French, was good news. But both of Dominique's forward hills, 1 and 2, and one of Elion's, E1, were in Viet Minh hands. From Jap, quote, On March 30th, 1954, at 5 p.m., the attack on the eastern hill started. This was a large-scale battle because its aim was not only to annihilate a battalion but several battalions at once. It was a complex struggle because it included a series of siege battles and annihilated many positions. It was started quite to our advantage. After 45 minutes, we destroyed all the enemy troops and occupied Hill C1 near Hill A1. You don't remember any of these. They're different from ours and we're not going to know what they are anyway. After one and a half hours, we put out of action part of a battalion of paratroopers and occupied Hill E, a stronghold in the north. 
After two hours, we annihilated all of the battalion defending Hill D and occupied this height, which was the most important stronghold and the second advanced position in the northern direction. Then Hill D2 was occupied. In the morning, the enemy launched against these hills a counterattack, which we'll talk about in a second here, followed but followed the next day by a second, which we'll talk about here. But they were all fought back, unquote. Um, you see there the way the Jap really just does not bring across the color, the flavor that we're looking for when we quote other people at length. Um, I think from this point out, I don't have any other more like demonstrative stuff. It's, it's all when he actually gives us a, sort of a new perspective on what's going on. Anyway, given that each of the taken hills was taller than those the French still held, they would have to wrest control back, or all of their remaining lower strong points would become untenable. Langley directed Bijard to plan the attack, which would include nearly the entire Gap II. Bijard's own 6th Colonial Airborne, along with the 8th, the 5th Vietnamese, and the 3rd Foreign Legion Infantry. That last unit wasn't even in the main position. It was down at Isabel, and the idea was that it, along with a platoon of three tanks, would make the six-kilometer march during the day, allowing the attack to go off that afternoon. Langley also looked forward to the arrival of Major Brechignac's 2nd Battalion of Parachute Light Infantry, another one of the best units available in Indochina, which Cogni had promised to Castries that he would deliver. They would need all of the men then in the camp to take the Lost Hills, and they would need fresh troops to then move in and hold them through the night. In support would be all of the artillery the base could spare, already reduced to half its strength at the beginning of March by Jap's accurate and withering fire. The 3rd Battalion of Foreign Legion Infantry and Isabel's tank squadron left to link up for the attack in the morning, but got pinned down by ambush and roadblock combined just two kilometers north of the position, retreating with heavy casualties, definitively ending the days of communication between the northern and southern CORs and leaving the northern counterattack even more understaffed. Bijard oversaw the operation from an open foxhole on the front slope of E4. Just in front of him to the east, he could see Elian 1, and farther to the north, D1 and D2. He'd surrounded himself with nearly a dozen radio sets and orchestrated the attack like a conductor, giving attention first to one section and then another, making sure that each played their parts in the movement at just the right time. Bijard's own 6th BPC moved on Elian 1 along with the men of the 5th Vietnamese Airborne, the men who had failed to come to the rescue of Gabriel two weeks before, and who had been covering themselves in glory since, as if to make up for that earlier disgrace. Coming up onto the point, the paratroopers found a position that had been, quote, thoroughly devastated after 20 hours of continuous shelling, unquote, says Fall. Quote, there were no shelters, no dugouts, no barbed wire, just the pockmarks of shells, the shattered bodies, and the stench of rotting human flesh, unquote. The situation on the Dominiques was not much better, but by 3 p.m. Bijard's troops had retaken every position, helped out by the fact that the Viet Minh hadn't had time to familiarize themselves with the strong points or to build any new fortifications facing the French. Likewise, the Viet Minh artillery's inexperience and its deep gun pits meant that it had a hard time hitting the French paratroops on approach. Once they were securely atop those hills again, though, Jap's gunners knew exactly where to shoot, and without the benefit of dugouts or, in most cases, even real trenches, Bijard's troops immediately began taking heavy losses to the incoming shells. The doughty major radioed Langley to tell him that they needed relieving troops to come up and reinforce the hills, or they would be forced to surrender everything that they had just seized. What news from Brechignac? he asked the effective base commander. Nothing from Hanoi. We don't know what the hell they're doing, Langley replied. Cogni at the time was out of HQ for reasons we don't need to get into, but which relate to the French officer corps' relaxed attitude in the colonial capitals and the breakdown of relations between himself and Navarre, and no decision was made to get Brechignac and his battalion of light parachute infantry into Dien Bien Phu in time for Bichard's counterattack on Dominique and Elian, or to reinforce them once it had taken place. 
with no reinforcements coming in from outside and no reserves available inside, the desperate play for the hills would end like most French operations of the war, surrendering the territory back to the Viet Minh. The 8th Colonial Airborne, minutes after clearing the last positions atop D2, walked back down off of it, Bijard eager to retreat earlier rather than later if retreat was necessary. He considered the situation on E1 for a while, but with D2 just to the north of it and taller than it back in Viet Minh hands, the position was indefensible, and he called his 6th BPC and the Viet Minh paratroops back down and into his place on E4. The situation was grave. Along with all the men they'd lost and exhausted in the counterattack, the defenders had also opened and emptied their last crate of hand grenades and smaller 81mm mortar shells. Whatever came that night, they would be even less prepared to ward it off than the last one. At 10 o'clock that evening, Langley asked Bichard to judge for himself whether Dominique and Eliane would see the morning. From Fall, quote, Everything now hinged on the decision of a relatively junior officer, who, for the past week, had been discharging the responsibilities of a brigade commander under the worst possible conditions, and who, for the past 48 hours, had barely eaten and scarcely slept. Bijard's answer came over the ANPRC-10 radio circuit, on which most battalion commanders, as well as the communists, who were fully equipped with captured radio sets, could listen in. Mon colonel, as long as I've got one man left alive, I'm not going to let go of Elian. Elian now meant Elian too, unquote. As darkness fell across the valley, painted here and there by fire belching from each side's big guns and by French flares either shot from their artillery or dropped by small firefly spotter planes, Jap gave the order to renew the previous night's attack. The men on E2 watched with apprehension and then mounting horror as green-uniformed Viet Minh troops began to pour forth from the apparently featureless facing slopes of Old Baldy and the Phony Mountain, even as the long barrels of the recoilless rifle sprouted forth and began to pour fire onto their positions. It looked as though Elian 2 might go under even before midnight ticked into April 1st, but a platoon of the tanks came roaring across the Bigley Bridge that engineering commander Sudrat had built over the Nam Yum, and combined with what were at that point some of the last shells of the French artillery, beat back the Viet Minh assault. Jeff's plans were as good, his troops as valiant, and their jobs just as hard as they had been on the night before, but this time instead of shaky colonials, Dominique and Elian were garrisoned with the absolute best the French had to offer, and when daylight again graced the camp, Bijard's 6th BPC still held Elian 4, the mix of Vietnamese and Foreign Legion Airborne remained on E2, and the 8th Airborne Battalion still sat atop Dominique 3. All of which was good news, but in the last few days, Bijard's 6th BPC had lost 46 dead and 183 wounded, and the Foreign Legion Airborne Battalion, 40 dead and 189 wounded, and paradropped reinforcements from Hanoi were still not forthcoming. Huget had fought its own fight in those couple of days, but had held, not being the real focus of Jap's attention. For all that its treatment was lighter, though, another battalion of Thai disintegrated under the punishing artillery fire. Langley rounded up all the other Thai irregulars, minus their non-coms in the fortress, and disbanded them, sending them to join the growing ranks of the rats of the Nam Yum, deserters of all nationalities, living their own independent existence in some of the old Dominique positions along the river. These folks would survive till the end of the battle, keeping to themselves as much as they could, except to creep out at night in attempts to steal food and supplies being airdropped to the French. At one point, the paratroops and legionnaires living near the rats of the Nam Yum got fed up and sealed all of the communication trenches around their hideouts, meaning that if the Viet Minh attacked, they'd be forced at least to fight, giving them some use in the overall defense. In Hanoi, 
Asked to evaluate the possibilities of sending major reinforcements to the valley, Cogni replied to Navarre that a large drop of men, quote, could reasonably take place only outside the valley, either in the form of a battalion which could attempt at joining Dien Bien Phu, or by an extension of the battle through acting on the enemy's rear areas, unquote. What all that means, Fall explains, quote, In other words, Cogni, on April 1st, had abandoned all hopes of reinforcing the garrison as such, but was still willing to risk perhaps 30,000 of his troops for a diversionary operation in the Red River Delta, unquote. Cogni gave Navarre that opinion, that dropping large numbers into the valley would be impossible unless he could diminish the pressure on the garrison by mounting an Operation Lorraine-style push out from the Red River Delta and into Jap's backside, a tactic that, as we've seen, has failed to work several times already, and then left any decision-making up to the commander-in-chief. Meaning that the only thing that Cogni had actually taken upon himself to decide was to refuse to reinforce the garrison, or in the best case, dribble in Brechignac's battalion, the one that the base desperately needed immediately in order to survive. Total drops in the base that day were around 100 men, without any ammunition or supplies because of the super slowness of the troop drops. You prioritize troops so they go first, but they've got to be dropped low, while the supplies which are being dropped on delayed fuses come through at hundreds of miles an hour and from on high, meaning that you can't drop them while anybody's in the air. From fall, quote, at Langlaise's command post, the results of the airdrop that night were considered catastrophic. If men were to be fed into the fortress at that rate, there was no way to make up for each day's losses, let alone reinforce the depleted battalions. And depleted they were. The Foreign Legion Airborne and Bijard's 6th BPC had four small 100-man companies each, and that day Botella of the 5th Vietnamese Airborne had reorganized his decimated unit into three companies with the strength of about two platoons each." Unquote. Langlaise's decision was that the entire base would have to be counted as a drop zone. The planes would scatter men on the wire, the gun positions, the radio antennas, everywhere. This and one other issue would become the subject of an ongoing fight between Langlaise and the reinforcement coordinator in Hanoi. Langlaise emphasized that the battle and possibly the war would be lost if men weren't poured into the valley by any means necessary. The reinforcement coordinator, on the other hand, fought to only drop men over established, secured drop zones. Langley, before long, would also start advocating for drops of unparachute-trained personnel. From Fall, quote, He insisted that basically a parachute was just a handy way of getting out of an aircraft in mid-air and could be used by any reasonably agile man who had jumped off of a streetcar, unquote. Langley would eventually win both of those fights. But not yet. Jap, for his part, having failed to win a swift victory on the Five Hills, took a two-pronged approach. He'd continued to hold his bits of and grind away at the French bits of Dominique and Elian, and as aware as the defenders of their supply problems, he'd do his best to choke off the nighttime deliveries. The best way to do that was to shrink the zone they could deliver to, and that meant biting off part of Hugette on the other side of the fortress. On the night of Friday the 2nd, the day after the paratroops had held Elian and Dominique, Jap set his men churning towards the Hugettes. If you don't have a map, remember that the Hugettes held the north and west of the French position against the flat ground out that way. H6 sat at the end of the airstrip a little ways up your middle finger. H7 was out by the base of your pinky. H1 through 3 sat on the left side of the airstrip where your middle finger moves back into your hand and 4 and 5 just to the left of them. And you don't have to worry about 1 through 5 for right now. Keep your eyes on H7 and H6. H7's isolation from every other point also meant that it held a greater share of the possible drop zone space, and that every evening it became the focus of Jap's attention. Holding Hugette 7 was a mixed bag company of legionnaires, Vietnamese troops, and the Thai non-commissioned officers that Lang Le had not banished. 
Assaulting it were two Viet Minh battalions, and by four in the morning the entire post except for a corner bunker belonged to Jap. A counterattack just after dawn led by two platoons of the Vietnamese paratroops, gleaned from the rest of the base, managed to clear Jap's Bodoy off the point again, finding the 14 survivors of the night holed up in that last bunker with several men who hadn't lived to see the dawn. But the point could not be held. The old crescent-shaped hill of Anne-Marie dominated H7 even more thoroughly than Baldy and the Phony Mountain did Eliot, and after the artillery pounding of the previous night, there really was no H7 left. To make it a position in fact as well as in name, the French would have had to reconstruct it under fire, pouring infantry into the point all the while. Langley did the hard thing again, and ordered the successful counterattackers to retreat, ceding the ground to Jap. The base's possible drop zone shrunk by a good 500 yards. Jap, as he recounts in his book, was doing the math and working on diminishing the French area by any means possible. Quote, The sector occupied by the enemy narrowed down to a square of two kilometers on a side. The central sector was within range of our guns of all sizes. Our anti-aircraft batteries also moved in. The narrow airspace left to the enemy was no more safe. At that time, to kill an enemy more, to occupy an inch of ground more, was also of important significance. On the one hand, we annihilated the enemy's positions, one by one, and repelled his counterattacks. On the other, we vied with one another in sniping the enemy. Rifle shooters, machine gunners, mortar gunners, and artillerymen did their best in this action, causing him greater and greater losses. His morale was sinking. He constantly lived in fear and tension. It did not dare move about for fear of being shot as soon as he went out of his fortifications, unquote. But Jap admitted likewise that the French were making him fight to keep his own supply lines intact. Quote, On our side, while throughout the second phase, that is this phase, we fought unremittingly at the Dien Bien Phu front, the battle against the enemy was also very fierce and hard on our lines of supply from the rear to the front. As has been said above, there was a great requirement in supply and reinforcement for the campaign. Our combat units amounted to tens of thousands of men. Our coolies serving in transport reached hundreds of thousands. Our lines of supply were as long as from 300 to 500 miles, and the duration of service dragged over six months. However, the means of transport was only partly mechanized. The remaining was rudimentary, using manpower, unquote. Jap says that the large-scale bombing campaign of the French was partially successful in impeding his incredibly extended lines of supply, but that a mobilization of all available manpower, up to and including, quote, medium and high-level cadres, unquote, into the line of porters, the battle was kept going, if not kept at 100% levels of supply. With H7 gone, the next logical step for Jap, of which the French were well aware, was H6, at the tip of the airstrip. If that also fell into the Baudoy's hands, the French position would be reduced to a nearly undroppable scrap of land in the middle of a hostile Viet Minh valley. Holding Huget 6 for the French was a short company of a hundred foreign legionnaires. Complicating their defense and augmenting their misery was the monsoon, now breaking on the French and Viet Minh alike. But whereas most of Jap's positions were up on hillsides, the majority of French strongpoints now sat in the lowlands, and all of Huget's positions were of those. The men on H6 were not only isolated, lonely, afraid of the next, probably devastating attack, but fighting in trenches that would soon fill to their knees and then their hips with water and mud. Even worse, the two tanks that the garrison had been using to store up the water filtered by Sudrat's purifiers were hit by shrapnel from Viet Minh artillery, forcing the men, for the moment, to drink the water of the valley, rife with intestinal disease. And when everyone was living in the same space they evacuated, itself half-filled with water, the situation on H6 went from bad to hellish. Things, of course, only got worse once Jap began to make his move. 
At 7.30 that same night, the 3rd of April, H-6 weathered Giap's first attempt, the Legionnaires on the point surviving only because of an intervention by Lang Lei, who slung part of a paratroop battalion onto the Hugets from the east, accompanied by three of the M-24 Bisons. The next day, the 4th, was the day that Georges Bideau submitted his official request to the Americans for an intervention at Dien Bien Phu. The loss of H-7 and half of the Dominiques and Elions, not to mention the way that Major Brechignac's parachute light infantry was dropping into the valley a few dozen per night, had convinced the French government, at least, that they would not be able to hold out without help. Jap made his second try for the isolated strongpoint at the tip of the runway just after midnight on the 5th. The Viet Minh had quote-unquote seriously probed different parts of Hugette just hours before, and the 90 remaining legionnaires on H-6 knew that the Bodoi would be coming for them again that night. By midnight 30, H-6 radioed Lang Lei, reported that it was being attacked from every side but south, and that the defenders were retreating to the southernmost part of their position. Lang Lei, knowing that this could be a real attack or just a diversion so that Jap could strike elsewhere, had to decide whether to commit his paltry reserves gleaned from other strongpoints, or wait and see, maybe losing H-6 in the process. So he called up the reserves. At 1.15, Lang Lei sent over the same paratroops and tanks that had blunted Jap's first assault, though fewer this time a short company of men and just two of the bisons. The Viet Minh, always good learners, were ready with depressed artillery and bazookas, and they knocked out one of the tanks immediately. The company split up, and half of it made it to H-6 to reinforce the garrison. At 3 in the morning, Lang Lei threw one of the half-dropped-in companies of Brechignac's newly-arrived parachute light infantry under Captain Kledic into the fight. Kledic and the men of his who had made it had only arrived in the valley the previous night, and they were now navigating by flare light, territory they'd barely had time to see, let alone study. Lang Lei relayed to Kledic that the previous group had bogged down on the way in. They'd come at H-6 from the only direction that made sense, the east, where the COR was, using communications trenches and the airfield's drainage ditch to keep undercover. Kledic chose another route. From Fall, quote, In one flying leap, he and his company crossed the wide-open airstrip, whose metallic runway plates shone like a mirror in the greenish light of the parachute flares, and rushed head-on into the southernmost Viet Minh elements covering the encircled strongpoint on its southern face. Kledic never gave them the chance to take aim. At 0420, he closed in with them, and in a vicious hand-to-hand -hand fight, mowed them down and broke into the ruins of H-6, where about 20 survivors were still holding on to one bunker. Without breaking pace, Kledic's men now began to mop up the peripheral trenches of the point. Unquote. Inasmuch as the young captain had taken some of the pressure off the garrison, Jap hadn't called off his attack, and a few dozen men wouldn't be able to hold indefinitely. So Ling Lei called in Bijard to plan yet another counterattack. Bijard walked into Lang Lei's HQ at 5 in the morning, and before 6, he'd arranged an attack by two companies of his 6th Colonial Airborne, the BPC. They'd cross to H-6, clear more of it the way Kledic had done, and hope that Jap would sound the retreat with the morning. They were of the best men the French had, but they were well under strength. Fall reports that both together didn't number 160 men, while Jap had more than 3,000 Bodoi committed to taking H-6. Bijard's men made it to Kledic and reinforced his position, but it was the morning and the weather that saved the French. The Vietnamese highlands play host to dry and wet fogs in the morning, depending on the season, and clouds in the afternoon of the monsoon, part of what so complicated French problems of supply. But the 5th of April dawned bright and clear, giving first the defenders' artillery a clear view, and then the planes that Hanoi had dispatched in the early morning to wait for a shot. The siege of H-6 fell apart like that of Vignen had years earlier, beneath the ghastly heat and stench of French napalm. The Legion outfit on the strong point had ceased to exist, and the battles for the Five Hills and the Hugettes had left a total of 2,600 infantrymen in the main position, counting those who were wounded but stayed at their posts anyway. 
That was down from 8,000 in early March, not including Isabel and either of those figures. French artillery had enough ammunition for just one day's fighting. The number of guns was down to a fraction of the original supply. There were only four remaining tanks in the main position, and another two on Isabel. The picture was grim, but there were two reasons, at least for the hard-fighting paratroops directing the defense, for hope. First, because of large drops while the fighting was going on around H6, Major Brechignac's parachute light infantry had managed to get most of its effectives on the scene. Lenglet, after a lengthy battle over the radio with the drop coordinator Sauvignac in Hanoi, finished by yelling, Merde! You can tell Colonel Sauvignac that I'll take the responsibility for the drop zone violations. Drop those men! Lenglet lit a gasoline barrel in the center of the camp on fire while the battle for H6 was raging and had the men dropped all over the camp. Two men died from Viet Minh gunfire on the drop while Major Brechignac himself landed in the wire, leaving his pants there in the scramble to Lenglet's dugout. But not one man misdropped. Lenglet would prevail in most of these battles over drop zones and training from here on. Cogni had also promised to Castries from Hanoi that he'd be sending another battalion, the second of the Foreign Legion Airborne under Major Hubert Liesenfeld. Second, despite the losses in men and terrain, they had weathered Jab's attacks, and they'd discovered that the Baudoy had been well-bloodied too. French intelligence had picked up radio messages from Jap to his bases of supply, calling up replacements on the double, needed to fill the fast-growing holes in his army. In fact, later French intelligence reports on the battle determined that, of all the casualties Jap's men would eventually sustain in prying the valley from its defenders, 10,000, or nearly 50%, had been sustained by April 5th, in wild fighting for the outer hills that had failed to secure victory or even a clear shot at it for the Baudoy to see. Jap at this point decided to transition to an even slower form of warfare. He redoubled his trench-building efforts, determined to chew away at the French strongpoints with earthworks, sparing his men even more of the approach on the eventual attacks. Jap said in a communique at the time that, quote, Our offensive on the eastern hills of the central sector has obtained important successes, but has failed to reach all of the assigned objectives. We have therefore decided to continue to execute the tasks foreseen for the second phase of our offensive, to advance our attack and encirclement lines, to improve our positions and occupy new ones, progressively to tighten further our stranglehold so as to completely intercept reinforcements and supplies, utilizing trenches which have been driven forward until they touch the enemy lines, the tactic of gnawing away at the enemy piecemeal." Unquote. And there was one last cordial exchange between the two opponents. Quote, At 10.50, de Castri sent a brief personal query to Hanoi. I've got 60 communist wounded on my hands. Can I give them back to the enemy? Indeed, the problem of the communist wounded in French hands was an additional cross which the garrison had to bear. Contrary to the practices of 1961 to 1967, in which both sides acted as if there were no rules of warfare and conventions on the treatment of prisoners, both the Fr he's talking about the American war there, both the French and the Viet Minh made some effort at fighting the war within at least a few humanitarian rules. Hence, Hanoi had no objections to de Castries addressing a radio message to the other side with the following text. To the commander of the People's Army Siege Force, we inform you that 20 of your wounded will be brought out on stretchers to Ban Ban, a village near the base, tonight at 2200. The men who will bring them shall not be armed. No action or firing shall take place in that zone until midnight. The exchange took place. As the French stretcher bearers, led by a master sergeant, arrived at Ban Ban, there was a group of Viet Minh stretcher bearers standing there in complete silence. Without exchanging a single word with the French, the Viet Minh picked up their wounded and disappeared into the night. As the fateful Geneva Conference approaches, 
Reds throw everything they have at supply lines leading to Dien Bien Phu, which has become symbolic of the outcome of the war in Indochina. The Haiphong Hanoi Road is mine. Hanoi and the seaport town of Haiphong form a vital air-sea link to the beleaguered garrison, which has now withstood more than a month of siege. Wounded men and damaged equipment are the daily toll, as the Reds hammer incessantly at the artery which is keeping Dien Bien Phu in the fight. Not only is the road under attack, but the paralleling rail line is mined nightly in a desperate but vain effort to knock out the supply route which may spell victory or defeat for the gallant French defenders, and which may have an important psychological effect on the conclusions reached at the forthcoming parley at Geneva. Herculean efforts keep the railroad in commission as labor battalions toil round the clock to keep rolling stock moving. With the fate of Southeast Asia in the balance, the battle of supply must be won. In Langlaise's headquarters dugout in the center of the French position at Dien Bien Phu, Bijard was convinced that they couldn't leave the ball in Jap's court. With Major Liesenfeld's 2nd Foreign Legion Parachute Battalion shortly to be streaming into the fortress, Bijard petitioned Langley to let him retake E1, the northern of the two front hills at Elion, and a key to the solid defense of that side of the base. Langley approved Bijard's plan on the 8th of April, maybe because the past couple of days had emphasized just how much they needed some breathing room. Every scrap of food but the survival rations that each man carried in his gear had been distributed, and a new set of aerial photos had shown that rather than leaving H-6 alone after the unsuccessful attacks, Jap now had it almost entirely surrounded, not with one trench, but with a trench system, and the Bodoi were busily working at cutting their way through and under the pierced steel plates of the airfield to complete that encirclement. When Lang Le gave him the go-ahead, Bijard's 6th Airborne Battalion and a company of Vietnamese paratroopers from the 5th BPVN, uh, Captain Botella's 5th Vietnamese Airborne, living with them on E4 were delighted to hear it. With Elian 1 looming over them and garrisoned by Jap with dozens of sharpshooters, they'd been living for a week and a half almost entirely underground, wading through mud in their cramped, dripping dugouts, trenches, and tunnels. The plan was as follows. The men to make the attack would be just two companies of Bijard's 6th Colonial Airborne, themselves at only half strength, totally 160 men, to the more than 800 that Jap had up on Elian 1. Bijard, learning from the Viet Minh, had had his men dig trenches at night from where they were on E4 out towards E1. The attack was to open up with all the artillery left in the base, plastering the Bodoy on the hill before becoming a rolling barrage, walking up the slopes just in front of the French infantry, then emerging from their trenches. At the same time, the last four tanks in the COR would barrel right up the slope of E1, while everyone left on E2 to the south poured fire on the flank. As Fall writes, quote, It was Bijard's intention to husband the manpower he could not afford to lose by high-volume, well-aimed firepower, unquote. The attack stepped off in the morning of April 10th, the same day that Dulles headed to London to try to convince Churchill to participate in the internationalization of the war. Bijard ran the attack the same way he had his previous ones, personally. From Fall, quote, Bijard had had his men dig a hole on the slope facing the objective, into which he moved half a dozen radio sets, each within reach. There he would huddle for the next ten hours, covered with the sand and debris of nearby enemy hits, and quote-unquote playing the whole battle on his radio transmitters as though they were ungodly musical instruments. He listened in on his infantry companies and on their calls to their platoons. He talked to the artillery commander and to the forward air controller, the mortars and the tanks, unquote. The whole thing could have been one of Jabs. 
Bijard broke his men into small commando groups, which swept over the first line of Bodoy defenses as quickly as possible, penetrating into the less well-protected center of the strongpoint, and leaving pockets of Viet Minh behind to be taken care of by the next wave or the one after. These weren't new tactics, but supremely old ones, invented by the Germans during the First World War. The intermingling of troops on top of Ewan's hill meant that the Viet Minh couldn't respond with artillery for fear of hitting their own men. French artillery and air power boxed in E1 after the attack began, throwing up a wall of bombs and shells between it and the Phony Mountain to the south and Dominique to the north. The Viet Minh did the same. They couldn't fire on to the point where the first waves of French already were, but they could and did fire behind it, and the paratroopers took most of their losses braving that withering barrage to reinforce the men fighting up on top. By 2 o'clock in the afternoon, the survivors of the two companies were in command of E1. They'd taken only 13 dead, 10 missing, and 26 wounded in the attempt, which was, for all that it was a small number, a loss of a third of the entire force. Bijard replaced them at 4 o'clock with two fresh companies from Major Brechignac's newly arrived light parachute infantry. These immediately began digging into the ruined hilltop, trying to get some kind of defense prepared for what would inevitably follow, Jap's counterblow. That fell at a quarter to seven, when the Viet Minh general's full complement of artillery began to pour onto E1, the French batteries, and the headquarters bunkers in the COR. From the very first, Jap committed three battalions to recapturing the heights. By eight o'clock in the evening, the Bodoy had pushed the French off the crest, and by nine o'clock they'd wounded both company commanders, leaving the French leaderless on E1. Bijard, watching from his open foxhole 150 yards away, decided that they'd have to keep the hill, and he'd radioed all the paratroop battalions, each of which had set aside a company or two for counterattacks. The first to mobilize was the first foreign legion, which lent Bijard two quote-unquote companies of 50 men each. The indomitable paratroop major threw them into the maelstrom on top of E1, and Jap, at the same time, committed a fourth battalion. From fall, quote, Then something very strange happened. Something which, in the recollection of the thousands of men who heard it that night, had rarely happened before it in Indochina. As the hundred legionnaires and French paratroopers stormed across the low saddle between E4 and E1, they began to sing. Some of the French paratroop songs are in fact translations of German paratroop songs. And now, as they stormed forward, the German legionnaires were singing in their grave Teutonic accents while the French were singing in their own language. For a moment, there seemed to be a brief lull in the battle. Even the enemy seemed to attempt to identify the strange new sound. But the song and its singers melted away in the firefight atop Elian 1, and Bijard decided to throw in the last available ready reserves, 2nd and 3rd companies, 5th Vietnamese paratroops. This was the same battalion that had covered itself with shame at the ford at Ban Ki Phi on March 15th. Purged of their unreliable elements and reinforced by some of the French cadre left over from the disintegrated Thai battalions, they had given a good account of themselves in the previous battles for Huget and the Five Hills, yet somehow they had never again been taken seriously. Now their turn had come to be offered up for sacrifice on Elian 1. Unflinchingly, the little Vietnamese paratroopers and their French cadres began the climb, and they too sang. In 1954, the Vietnamese army was still a young army. It had flags of its own and a national anthem. But so far, no one had yet found the time to provide that army with a rousing marching song that could be shouted at the top of one's lungs if only to drown out one's fright. But there was one song which was then still in the cultural inventory of every Vietnamese schoolboy, and that was the French national anthem, the Marseillaise. As the Vietnamese paratroopers in turn emerged on the fire-beaten saddle between the hills, there suddenly arose, for the first time and the last time in the Indochina War, the Marseillaise. It was sung the way it had been written to be sung in the days of the French Revolution, as a battle hymn of the French Republic. 
It was sung that night on the bloodstained slopes of Hill Elyon won by Vietnamese fighting other Vietnamese in the last battle France fought as an Asian power. By midnight, after nearly five hours of contest on top of the position, the last dregs of Brechignac's paratroops, the Foreign Legion Airborne, and the Vietnamese stood alone atop Elian Wan, as stunned to have emerged victorious as the Viet Minh were to have lost. The Bodoy had left 400 men on the ground, and the French hadn't done much better. One of Brechignac's companies, between its dead, wounded, and missing, ceased to exist entirely. The Legionnaires and the Vietnamese paratroops took a hundred casualties between them, but E1 was, for the moment, safe. From Fall, quote, Companies would stay 48 hours on top of E1, be bled white, and be pulled back for rest. The next company would then be hacked to pieces on top of the hill. The bodies of friend and foe on E1 were covered with a light layer of sand and sandbags and used as revetments, only to be torn up again and again by the incoming shells. The French were to stay on Elian 1 until almost the end of the battle. When it finally fell, Dien Bien Phu had only a few days to live. General Jap, especially now after the failed counterattack on E1, made his transition to a slower, and even slower, form of trench warfare. It wasn't only black and white numerical or statistical considerations for the great Viet Minh general, but concern over the morale of his men. Those old Bodoy hands who had lived through the disastrous assaults on fixed French positions at Vinh at the Day River, at Hoa Binh, and at Na San had not been eager on arriving in Dien Bien Phu to get involved in that kind of fight again. The first assaults had been costly, but with strong points falling by the day, it had looked like the tide had turned and spirits had stayed high among the troops of the DRVN. The Battle of the Five Hills, though, and the tries for the Hugettes were beginning to resemble more and more closely those earlier, costlier fights, and Jap knew that to continue demanding that kind of effort from his men might eventually not go over so well. So he set his soldiers to digging again. Not only the massive infrastructural work going on outside and around the valley, not only the approach trenches they'd been using since the beginning. Now Jap's men were building tunnels, invisible to the French until they popped up inside the wire. On, or better said beneath Dominique and Elian, Jap was constructing mine galleries, something nobody had seen since the First World War. You tunnel deep underneath the enemy position, you fill the end of the tunnel with dynamite, and you collapse the whole hill from below. Hanoi, better aware of what was going on in Jap's lines than the French in Dien Bien Phu because of their aerial reconnaissance, began parachuting geophones to the base, jury-rigged combinations of army wine canteens and stethoscopes meant to be used to detect undermining. Cogni also had his staff provide Lang Lei with instructions for countermines, instructions that would have taken more wood, manpower, and dynamite than the French had ever had in the whole base. Those few tons of construction materials that engineering commander Sudrat was still managing to get couldn't be detailed for mines anyway. The monsoon and Jap's artillery were erasing whole positions from the map, and the French needed actual supplies to attempt to rebuild them. The advice and the limited drops from Hanoi weren't of much help. The choking trenches around Huget 6 out at the tip of the airstrip became enough of a worry for the garrison at that point to sally out during the daytime, often enough meeting not empty trenches, but Viet Minh units dug into their earthworks between Huget and the rest of the French. It was getting very lonely out on H6, and it would get worse before long. Getting back to the international situation now, and leaving that situation on H6 for a minute, you'll recall that the great powers minus China met in Berlin in February, and that there they decided to hold the first full five-power talk, the USSR, the UK, the US, France, and China, to discuss Korea and the ongoing war in Indochina to be held in late April. 
The three Western powers, as we've said, spent the time between them intriguing. The British and the French working towards peace, the Americans working towards an international intervention into the war that would torpedo the conference before it ever got started. The United Kingdom, Tory, conservative, support for Churchill, who seemed to be led around by the nose by Eisenhower, it seemed that way to the British public is what I'm saying, was slipping away, and Labour was staunchly opposed to some new Asian venture, which would almost certainly provoke a wider war with China. Churchill, hero of the nation as he might have been, was not sitting at the time on top of a rock-solid government coalition. All of which did not dispose the old man to follow Eisenhower into what looked like a very bad bet of a war, especially one which the Americans were continually talking about expanding into China and augmenting with nuclear weaponry. Their shaky parliamentary coalition to one side, neither Churchill nor Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden wanted any part of that. The other reason Eden wasn't convinced that a joint American-British intervention into the war was necessary, or that it would be effective, was that USAID to France was already orders of magnitude greater than Chinese assistance was to the Viet Minh. Like we asked earlier in the episode, if the French couldn't win under those circumstances, then it didn't seem to make sense to widen the war to cut off what were relatively paltry supplies coming down from the Chinese border. Eden and the rest of the British policymakers came to a decision, and would stick to it. The best solution to the war in Indochina was a partition of Vietnam by negotiation at Geneva, just like Korea had been, and damn American sensibilities. Dulles flew out to London, as we mentioned, to try to bring Eden around in early April, and he discovered that the British were even less willing to get involved than they had been back in March. Right around that time, on Good Friday, April 16th, Vice President Richard Milhouse Nixon made a speech to the American Society of Newspaper Editors. The idea was that he could open up, since he'd only be quoted as a quote-unquote high administration official, and Nixon made the best of the opportunity. Drawing from Logoval, Nixon said that the French lacked the will to win, that they would lose Dien Bien Phu, and that its loss would lead them to Geneva looking to quote, settle in Indochina at any cost, unquote. Indochina, then, would fall to the communists within a month. Asked what the U.S. ought to do about it, Nixon replied that, quote, the United States, as a leader of the free world, cannot afford further retreat in Asia, unquote. And then this, again from Logoval, quote, it is hoped that the United States will not have to send troops there, but if this government cannot avoid it, the administration must face up to the situation and dispatch forces. Therefore, the United States must go to Geneva and take a positive stand for united action by the free world. Otherwise, it will have to take on the problem alone and try to sell it to others. This country is the only nation politically strong enough at home to take a position that will save Asia, unquote and unquote. Unquote and unquote, because I'm quoting it out of Logoval, but it's Nixon speaking. Yeah. The press, who quickly identified Nixon as the unnamed administration official, took the statement as an officially vetted trial balloon. That is the press that was not present at the meeting. An officially vetted trial balloon, one meant to be acted upon if the response was good. Whether or not he'd had a previous go-ahead, Ike and Dulles both privately backed Nixon up, and nobody rebutted him in the press. Eisenhower's administration is always held up as sort of a straight-shooting er-Republicanism, and it's true that there was some of that there. Eisenhower made and completed real commitments to the reduction of military spending, and inasmuch as it took place at the end of his term and not the beginning, we all know about his famous farewell speech in the military-industrial complex. But Ike's White House was also always pulling off this kind of stuff, floating little test balloons, seeing just how much they could get away with. And we know from the shows on Guatemala, making serious investments in propagandizing both the world and the U.S. public. Nixon's little speech had been a test balloon. The Congress, blindsided, was less than happy with it, and a Gallup poll taken after Nixon's speech recorded that 68% of the public opposed sending ground forces to the war. 
At meetings over 20 to 22 April in Paris, French Foreign Minister Georges Bidot once again asked Dulles for immediate American air intervention at Navarre's request, even though the French commander-in-chief was pessimistic that it would do any good, except in the sense of resupplying the fortress. And Bidot promised to immediately liberate Indochina and internationalize the war in return, the two things that the Americans had been asking for forever. But Dulles knew that to get a military intervention from Eisenhower, he needed the support of the Congress. The Congress, again, wouldn't do anything without the British, and maybe wouldn't do anything even with them after that Nixon speech, and the British were not coming along. So Dulles told Bideau, no. From Logoval, quote, But Dulles did offer a response, the nature of which has been shrouded in controversy for half a century. According to Bideau, the American took him aside during an intermission and asked him whether atomic bombs could be effective at Dien Bien Phu. If so, Dulles allegedly went on, his government could provide two such bombs to France, unquote. Georges Bideau, to his credit, turned this offer down, since to use the bombs in the valley would massacre the defenders, and to use them on Jap supply lines would surely bring China into the war. What's also true, and what he might not have mentioned since it wouldn't have appealed to Dulles' sensibilities, is that there might have been good non-military reasons not to drop two atomic bombs on a country that you'd like to possess, or on any country at all. Dulles ever after denied that he had made this offer, but the evidence, which you can read up on in Logoval, is pretty good. What's more, U.S. planning for Operation Vulture, that big air intervention around Dien Bien Phu, had always included contingency plans for the use of tactical nuclear warheads around the valley. And we know from this show that the Eisenhower administration was constantly spitballing about dropping atom bombs. Logoval again, quote, Saturday, April 24th, dawned sunny and warm, a glorious Paris spring day. Overnight, Dulles had cabled the president, who was spending the weekend in Augusta, Georgia, informing him of the Bideau request for intervention at Dien Bien Phu. The situation here is tragic, Dulles wrote. France is almost visibly collapsing under our eyes. Dien Bien Phu had achieved symbolic importance out of all proportion to its military significance, and if the fortress fell, most likely the government will be taken over by defeatists, unquote. Dulles met with British Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden in Paris again shortly afterwards and laid out everything anew. Joint action, the United States to be the major partner as immediately as possible. Let's do it. Eden was less and less willing at this point to listen to the childishly simple political thinking behind the domino theory and told Dulles that intervention in Indochina would be, quote, hell at home, unquote, the perfect way to destroy Churchill's parliamentary coalition and find themselves out of office. Eden, according to Logoval, said that Dulles was in a, quote, fearfully excited state, unquote, while they talked, and that he called in chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Admiral Radford, to talk about bombing China to kingdom come, again with nuclear warheads. All the same, Dulles drew up a plan for joint majority United States intervention, George Bideau approved it, and Eden, at the least, took it home so that Churchill could have a look at it. Dulles typically announced that the plan was a joint resolution signed by the three men, which it wasn't. Eden reiterated afterwards, publicly, that all he could do was take the thing home to London so that Churchill and the rest of the cabinet could consider it. He sent a cable back to the Foreign Office before getting on the plane to London, saying, quote, It is now quite clear that we shall have to take a decision of first-class importance, namely whether to tell the Americans that we are prepared to go along with their plan or not, unquote. When Eden got home, he found, as he expected and he was happy to find, that the British government, unwilling to carry on a struggle for French imperialism, convinced that the airstrikes wouldn't do any good anyway, and totally unconvinced of the domino theory, turned the Dulles plan down. Logoval one last time, quote, A great part of his life and strength, 
Prime Minister Churchill concluded, had been directed towards strengthening the bond between English-speaking peoples, and in particular between Great Britain and America. But the two allies could not now allow themselves to commit to a policy that might lead to their destruction, and that was almost certain to be militarily ineffective. The loss of the fortress must be faced, Churchill said bluntly, and France had insufficient forces to hold down all the rest of Indochina. The sensible policy was for France to withdraw to areas she could realistically hold, and for London and Washington to await the outcome at Geneva before taking further measures. President Eisenhower resumes his role of political campaigner with a flying tour of the Far West. At Missoula, Montana, Ike and Interior Secretary McKay are welcomed by Governor Aronson. The president taking the stump calls for the election of a Republican Congress in November to make certain that his legislative program is carried forward. A night rally in the Hollywood Bowl highlights the California phase of President Eisenhower's three-day, four-state trip. 20,000 persons here Ike warned against a democratic victory that would create a division and control of the government. He calls for a rekindling of the enthusiasms that carried the GOP into power two years ago. Warm, friendly street crowds reminiscent of the presidential campaign cheer Ike. Speaking before the American Federation of Labor Convention in Los Angeles, the president renews his pledge to push for reforms in the Taft-Hartley law. With the political campaign getting hotter, Republican leader Eisenhower comes to the aid of his party. Back in the valley, the old World War I French word for what Jap had begun was grinotage, the nibbling away of French positions in imitation of the war on the Western Front of 40 years beforehand. Lead elements would carve out dirt from the front of a trench, the dirt would be passed back into sandbags, and logs and camouflage would go up over the top of the preceding trench, concealing its forward progress. Picks and shovels were once again audible at every French point, this time during the day as well as during the night. Viet Minh commissars by this point were working overtime, shoring up morale among troops who had borne the brunt of incredible sacrifice, first in the preparations and then in the fighting of the battle. Viet Minh flak, likewise, was getting better, and the area protected by the Hugets was getting smaller each and every day, and combined with the monsoon, all of them were shrinking deliveries of men and supplies to the camp. Fall reports that in April, Jap's flak batteries downed eight aircraft. This was after they moved up their drops to several thousand feet too, remember, including two B-26s shot down at 10,000 feet, which is an achievement, along with 47 planes severely damaged. Quote, Indeed, some of the older pilots who ten years earlier had flown in raids on Germany swore that the density of communist flak over Dien Bien Phu often exceeded that faced over heavily defended industrial targets in Germany, unquote. Lang Lei, in another go-round with Colonel Savignac, the parachute reinforcement coordinator in Hanoi, finally prevailed upon the man to allow untrained men to jump into Dien Bien Phu. What's incredible about it, writes Fall, is that psychologically it's apparently tougher to get a man to jump out of a plane the second and third times than it is the first time. So while there were apparently plenty of refusals by men just out of jump training to hurl themselves into the darkened void above the flames and explosions of Dien Bien Phu, guys on their first jumps were happy to trade parachutes for the flak-buffeted interiors of their planes. And statistically, first-time totally untrained parachutists did just as well, or as badly, as those who were qualified. Over the whole course of the battle, 4,277 men hit the silk above the valley, and 681 of them were non-qualified jumpers. What may be more incredible is that none of those unqualified men was ordered to go. 
They were drawn, as were most qualified men, from a pool of volunteers from all over Indochina, including Europeans, North Africans, South Africans, and Vietnamese. And South Africans, I mean Sahara and below. When de Castries began to insist on foreign legion reinforcements, for example, once the 13th Half Brigade was down to a couple of short companies, an entire foreign legion battalion in the Red River Delta, along with its commanding officer, volunteered to go. But while misdrops of men into enemy lines were rare, misdrops of equipment were not. Planes regularly delivered supplies and ammunition to the Viet Minh. In early April, especially devastatingly, French pilots handed a massive supply of 105mm shells with new American-made short-delay fuses to Jap. These shells would wait just a fraction of a second between touching ground and detonating, meaning that they were able to penetrate and destroy a huge proportion of those few French bunkers that had so far survived previous bombardments. The American CIA pilots of Civil Air Transport, meanwhile, piloting their larger flying boxcars, couldn't speak French, meaning that they couldn't communicate either with their flight mates or with the Air Force coordinator in Dien Bien Phu, a guy whose name we don't know and we don't need to know, increasing their misdrop rate dramatically. Food was already a problem for the rest of the base as well. Fall emphasizes here two points. First, while the fighting effectives of the main position were down to below 3,000 men, maybe at 3,000 with Brechignac's outfit coming into the base, Dien Bien Phu, including all of its support staff, thousands of Viet Minh prisoners, and especially its mounting numbers of wounded, still held over 16,000 men, all of whom needed to eat. Second, France's colonial army didn't eat just one type of ration. There were separate tins for Europeans, North Africans, Africans, Vietnamese, Thai auxiliaries, and the POWs. Pork couldn't go to the Muslims, Europeans couldn't get by on just rice, and Asians wouldn't go without it. With the men's ability to cook diminishing every day and the reliance on cans increasing, Langley made sure also, I don't know how, that every man in the fortress got and had to eat raw onion and whatever fruit they could scrape together to fend off stuff like scurvy and beriberi. Not only all that, but since all the planes in Indochina together could barely get the garrison enough supplies on a good day when the weather and lucky hits by Jap's flak didn't prevent the drops, every night Lang Lei had to make a torturous choice between more men, more ammunition, more medical supplies, or more food, and food nearly always lost that fight. Now, these same days in the second week of April, because of breaks in the weather, brought the highest drop weights of all time, getting up above 200 tons several days in a row. But it didn't do anything for the food problem, because on April 14th, either a stray or an extremely well-placed Viet Minh shell hit the mountain of food that the garrison had been piling up before distribution and lit a bonfire, burning 300 kilograms of cheese, 700 kilograms of tea, 700 of coffee, 450 of salt, 110 of chocolate, and 5,080 individuals individual rations. This was adding injury to insult, as just a couple of days before, a similar shell had destroyed the camp's tobacco store, filling the valley of Dien Bien Phu, as various Frenchmen reported, with pipe smoke. On that day, Lang Lei put the whole camp on short rations, and at the end of the month, they would be on half rations. And the area that the French could drop into kept shrinking. On April 14th, three days after Bichard retook Elian 1, the French water runs on their way out to the Hugettes discovered that the Viet Minh had blasted a trench clear across the airfield and its pierced steel plates. It's hard to give you a sense of how devastating this was without a map, but if H6 was at the tip of the airfield and H1 was about halfway down it on the left side, with 2 and 3 farther south alongside it, this trench was between H1 and H2, level with Dominique 4, practically in the middle of the French COR. Attempts to break through that day were unsuccessful, meaning that to get water and food out to those points, the French would practically need Bijard to plan a full-scale operation. 
The task of carrying that water and food out to Huget, when it made it and when it didn't, fell to the PIMs, the PIMs, the 2,440 Viet Minh prisoners living inside the base. You don't, you don't need to know the, what the French words are that make PIM the acronym, just remember it's PIM. The French turned all of their prisoners over to Sudrat's engineers, using them as coolie labor inside the camp. The international conventions to which France was subject at the time didn't outlaw using POWs for labor, but they definitely outlawed the use of POWs for warlike activities. And given that the PIMs ended up building gun pits, underground dugouts, collecting airdrop supplies, and carrying water and ammo under fire, the French were definitely in the wrong here. Long one from Fall, quote, The faithfulness of the Pims at Dien Bien Phu to their captors remains a mystery to this day. Only 30 actually made a deliberate and successful attempt to escape while between the lines collecting dropped supplies. Patrico, a witness he's using, distinctly recalls the following conversation between a Pim and a Moroccan guard who had panicked under the artillery fire and was running away from his guard detail. The Pim ran after the Moroccan and brought him back to where the Pims were sweating out the barrage and said to him, You Moroccan here to guard Pim. You stay here. In the course of their supply-collecting assignments, the PIMs often came upon freshly parachuted weapons or found fully loaded weapons on the battlefield. There was no known case of the PIMs trying to hide such weaponry. It was not uncommon for PIMs to be separated from their guard while they were between the lines and minefields on the lookout for dropped cargo. More than once, one of the outposts suddenly radioed that he was being approached by some Viet Minh carrying our supplies. The supreme test of the feelings of the PIMs for their captors also came at the end of the battle. The Viet Minh had vowed that they would try as war criminals, French officers who had been part of the PIM guard detachment, because really what they were doing was a war crime. Hundreds of the PIM knew Lieutenant Patrico, this same guy that Fall was talking to, by sight, and quite a few knew him by name. Not one denounced him. Major Cole de Boeuf, whose name Beefneck exactly translated his build and stature, also commanded a large PIM detachment as Deputy Major Clement Sohn. As he, in turn, his hands tied tightly behind his back with telephone wire, marched off to prison camp after the battle, he passed by chance in front of his own PIM detachment, awaiting transportation by the wayside. One by one, the PIM rose and gave him the military salute. One of them who spoke French said, Bonne chance, mon commandant, unquote. The French, by misusing the PIMs in this way, however reasonable it might have seemed to them in the fortress at the time, caused fully half of those PIMs to die under fire. And it's more than plausible to believe that later callous treatment that the French would receive on their long march after the battle might have had something to do with the way the PIMs made out while it was still going on. In the hospital, with wounded streaming in all through March and early April from the Five Hills and the Hugettes, Dr. Grawan's perennial issue was finding more room for beds and recovery rooms. Sudrat's Moroccan engineers built out more tunnels every night, eventually linking the hospital with half of the southern strongpoints on the COR for want of more space. The monsoon made the structure of the tunnel complex tenuous, and the work even more hellish than before. Groan had been operating nearly non-stop for a month, stripped to the waist, and since the end of March also up to his knees in standing water. On April 17th, the hospital reported its first case of post-operative gangrene, but the monsoon actually ended up helping on that score. A collapse under the makeshift graveyard the French had also constructed in the COR dumped corpses and masses of thick white maggots into the hospital. While the men on whose wounds these maggots fell and in which they, as flies, later laid their own eggs often panicked, Groan had his orderlies go around and explain that the wriggling little worms were each man's best bet against his own case of wound rot. The Viet Minh, meanwhile, who only had one surgeon for their 50,000 men, were in this case in much worse conditions than the French. Dr. Tan That Tung had six assistants and was likewise operating in standing water. 
Because of French artillery catching the Baudoy on the attack, head wounds were a particular problem, and the doctor had to teach his orderlies how to open, clean, and close a skull. Normally, to stop bleeding in and around the brain, at least at the time, I'm no medical expert, you used what's called an electrocoagulator. A little probe transmitted radio waves, which heated the blood vessel you were trying to get to quit bleeding, and voila, it stopped. The Viet Minh, not having that equipment on hand, had to play operation with a white-hot platinum wire, trying to pinch off individual veins and arteries in open skulls under dim, swaying lights, with artillery crashing just a few hundred yards away. Writing in his journal on the 27th of April, Dr. Tan That Tung said this, and it's drawn from uh, Logoval, quote, 0.45 a.m., Somebody rings me up for the next operations. While waiting for the arrival of the wounded, I sit alone in front of the operating room, a straw hut lit by the vacillating light of a kerosene lamp. The song of crickets is drowned in the gurgle of the brooks. Our artillery thunders at regular intervals, as though to mark time. The sudden changes in the weather make me feel bad. I recall President Ho's advice, you must overcome all difficulties. So many difficulties have cropped up. Dien Bien Phu, an idea, a place for testing people's endurance, unquote. A Viet Minh nurse assisting the surgeon later wrote on this too, again drawn from Logoval, quote, It was raining very hard, and there was a lot of standing water, so there were places cut to allow water to run off, because the bunkers for the wounded had to be kept dry, so the wounded had platforms to lie on. But you had to go out to check the wounded, especially the ones with head wounds, wounds to the skull and brain, and if we discovered that they had died, we had to carry out the policy for handling the dead. We had to bind their hands and feet so that the mortuary people could handle them properly. And when we found someone who had died, we had to follow the procedures to protect and guard them. This was because we also had civilian coolies moving by, and maybe the coolies needed a shirt or a pair of pants, so they would strip clothing from the dead. The guy I replaced had put them outside and had not guarded them properly, and this is why he was disciplined. So I was very frightened of this job. The work was tense and nerve-wracking, and you had all these kinds of things to worry about." Unquote. Jap himself wrote about the appearance of rightist tendencies in late April, when the troops were most exhausted and least able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, th this is from Jap's book on Dien Bien Phu, and I realize now I never mentioned the title of his book on Dien Bien Phu, and I think the reason I haven't is because the title is, predictably, Dien Bien Phu. Anyways, from that book, quote, However, it was precisely at that time that a rightist and negative tendency appeared among our officers and men under various forms. By the way, rightist within communist writing sometimes means actually rightist, but here it just means sort of um, hesitant, resistant, uh, opposed to authority, opposed to orders, whatever. It has nothing to do with the rightist politics. Anyway, under various forms, fear of casualties, losses, fatigue, difficulties, and hardships, underestimation of the enemy, subjectivism, and self-conceit. Following closely the situation of our army men at the front, the political bureau of the party central committee assessed that the great victories won lately had created basic conditions for our troops to annihilate completely the enemy at Dien Bien Phu, but our officers committed mistakes, mainly because their rightist tendencies curbed somewhat the influence of our victories. The political bureau instructed, quote, All levels of the party, the party members and the cadres, must do their best to overcome rightist tendency, consolidate and raise their determination, heighten their sense of responsibility before the people, army, and party, resolutely correct the past mistakes, grasp further the principle of striking surely and advancing cautiously. At the same time, work against time, strictly obey orders, overcome all difficulties and hardships, and fulfill their task of securing complete victory for the campaign, unquote, but continuing with the quote from Jeff's book. In these conditions, the political work which had played a role of paramount importance continued to expound thoroughly the great significance of the campaign and to interpret carefully the determination of the party central committee which was to annihilate completely the enemy at Dien Bien Phu. Each success on our part and each reverse of the enemy encouraged our officers and men. 
The example of combativeness and sacrifice of our heroes and fighters served to develop the revolutionary heroism among our troops and to keep firm and raise their determination to fight and win. Political work also saw to the interpretation and supervision of concrete tasks such as discipline and organization of life at the front, supply of hot food and hot drink, arrangement for the fighters to have sufficient sleep. We must see whether our positions had been built up to the requirement to enable our troops to move along in the daytime without being discovered by the enemy, whether these positions were not wet, and whether the rule of preventative hygiene had been observed. Political work also saw to the maintenance of the fighting forces in required numbers, the replenishment of these forces and promotion of new cadres. Great attention was paid to recruiting new party members and reorganizing party cells. The respect of a strict discipline, correct and timely punishment, and reward were also important to raise the combativeness of our troops." Unquote. The campaign of political work against these rightist tendencies, which the party and army launched in late April, apparently succeeded, and Jap says that it was one of the greatest achievements ever scored by this work in the history of struggle of our army, and that the, quote, great result obtained was the suppression of all manifestations of the erroneous tendency, unquote. Ho Chi Minh's DRVN at this time was focused, and therefore General Jap was focused, on the upcoming and then ongoing negotiations at Geneva, which were due to start in mid to late April. Inasmuch as the Viet Minh controlled much of the country, including most of the Mekong and Red River Deltas, the French could fight on, and if they had the will, for quite a while yet, given their edge in firepower and control of the air. The Vietnamese population, likewise, was getting pretty damn tired after eight years of non-stop war, supported at great personal risk, even to the peasantry, and was experiencing the same kinds of morale problems as the soldiers at Dien Bien Phu. Negotiations at Geneva were a gamble but they also might have been the only way to bring the fighting to a close without losing the war by losing the peasants in the process. And they had to win it before the U.S. decided finally to join the struggle. Plus, in a war predicated on opposition to the French, the growing involvement of Vietnamese on the French side of the fighting was making the war more fratricidal, the claims of national unity more tenuous, and the prospects, especially for peaceful consolidation afterwards, much more difficult. The Chinese and the Russians, meanwhile, both wanted to end the war. The Russians because they were pursuing detente with the United States, the Chinese to stave off of U.S. intervention on its other border so soon after Korea, and for the chance to participate in the Great Power Club. Both urged Ho to consider a solution that would leave the country partitioned, as Korea had been. Ho and the DRVN, despite that this was anathema, warmed to this possibility when it started to look like the only possibility, as long as it was understood to be a temporary partition, not the practically perpetual one in Korea. Speaking against American involvement, a freshman senator from Massachusetts, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. The reason why the war in Indochina has not had the support of the people of that area and the people of Asia has been that the French have maintained too great a degree of control over the lives of the people. Indochina is an ancient French colony, and even though the French have made gradual concessions to the people, their control is still paramount. Therefore, the communists under Ho Chi Minh are able to claim that they are fighting for independence and the French appear to be fighting for a maintenance of colonial rule. I therefore believe that before the United States moves in in any degree, that independence must be granted to the people, that the people must support the struggle, because unless, as I said, that support is forthcoming, any intervention by the United States is bound to be futile. Fall calls the days between the middle and the end of April the strangling of the Hugettes, and it began with H6. 
Beaten back on the 14th, two days later on Good Friday, Langley sent bits of both Foreign Legion airborne battalions and Bijard's 6th BPC with 60 Vietnamese PIMs holding jerry cans of water to the embattled strongpoint. 42 of those PIMs fell either dead or wounded on the way in, delivering 94 of their original 700 liters of water, just a quarter of the men's daily hydration requirement. Langley did the math at this point, and the cost in men of supplying Huget 6 over the past week was higher in dead and wounded than Bijard's entire counterattack to take Elian 1. Langley decided that, despite the breadth that H6 gave to the drop zone, he'd have to evacuate the point the next night. Bijard, as always, had the plan. He would get together every spare man that he could, drawing from all the paratroop and foreign legion outfits, and in the last hours of Holy Saturday, they would try to break through and link up with Captain Bizard, not Bijard, but Bizard, who was head of the Vietnamese paratroops, and the rest of the mixed bag out on Huget 6. Then they'd all head back inside the French lines together. But Jap, always aware of how to best exploit French weaknesses and use them to bleed the force he was really after, something he'd been learning since 1946 and had perfected at the Battle of Hoa Binh, if we remember that from hours and hours and hours ago, had ordered his Bodoi to redouble their efforts to cut off Huget 6 since the supply run on Friday. A couple of hours into the attack at 10pm, Bijard's force had made it halfway through the Viet Minh trench lines between H6 and the rest of the base, and then had halted as Colonel Langley later said, quote, out of breath, out of ammunition, and out of men, unquote. As the sun came up, not wanting to get caught in the open, Bijard's force pulled back to the airfield drainage ditch, which ran alongside it, in which Sudrat's engineers had been desperately turning into another line of defense, called Opera, during the night. They radioed Captain Bizard out on H6 to tell him that they had not made it, and that he'd have to try fighting his own way through. They also told him that nobody would blame him if he had to surrender. But neither Bizard nor the group of Vietnamese, French, and Legion paratroops, who had held H6 for a month now, had any desire to pack it in. The captain radioed Lang Le to tell him that the breakout would go ahead at 8 in the morning. The men left their guns in their trenches, loaded up on grenades, and draped sandbags over their shoulders as makeshift flak jackets. At 8 on the dot, Bizard shouted and they sprinted out of their foxholes, leaping over the Viet Minh in their trenches who, focused on Bijard's failed attack, were looking the other way. They made the airfield, and a member of the Legion Mortar Company that had tried to put down fire behind them told Bernard Fall he remembered them yelling as they pelted over the bare steel plates, the Spanish anarchists in Bizard's Legion force clearly singing out in their own language. Another bout of heroics on the French side, but once Bizard collected up his survivors after 10 in the morning, it became clear that the garrison of H6 had effectively disappeared in the returning. 106 dead, 49 wounded, and 79 missing. Given that the garrison on the point had barely had 200 men to begin with, the survivors were bizarre, those 49 wounded, and basically nobody else. As Fall writes, Jap then turned his attention to the next point in line. Quote, Wednesday through Thursday, April 21 to 22, 1954. The pattern of H6 now began to repeat itself on H1 with desperate monotony. Unquote. H1, like H6, had been plowed under during the previous fighting, its defenses totally ripped up by Jap's artillery, and like H6, it was being totally surrounded by trenches and earthworks occupied by the Bodoi. During the four days or so after the fall of H6, resupply ones to H1 got just as costly as they had been in the previous point, until Langley again had to call them off. All of which was exacerbated by airdrop supplies falling constantly below minimum acceptable levels for the entire base. By this point, too, despite the engineers' best efforts, nearly all of the garrison's dozens of vehicles had been destroyed or damaged beyond repair. 
the night of 21 April saw the end of its last two trucks, meaning that from that point on, the airdrop loads had to be even lighter, or they would be totally unrecoverable by the men on the ground. On H1, the final attack came on that Friday, April 23rd. Jap's troops emerged from what aerial photography later showed to be 30 different approach trenches, popping up inside the wire from every conceivable angle. By the early morning, when our old Sergeant Kubiak, survivor of Beatrice, was gearing up for a supply run slash breakthrough, it was already too late. From Fall, quote, At 0700, a few foreign legionnaires from H1 succeeded in crawling back to H2 and said that they'd seen Captain Chevalier standing on top of his own bunker with the last square of 10 legionnaires and dying on the spot. Kubiak had witnessed the end of H1 from his vantage point in the communications trench. When he was asked as to whether there were many prisoners who had fallen into Viet Minh hands, the sergeant from the Legion outpost said in what was meant to be a reassuring tone, No, they are surely not prisoners. It looks as if it has been a real massacre. The loss of H1 was ominous for two reasons. First, because it demonstrated the effectiveness of the new communist siege by seepage tactics. And second, because it gave the Viet Minh virtual control of 90% of the airfield, making relatively safe, accurate parachuting reinforcements all but impossible. As soon as the seriousness of the situation was grasped by Langley and Bijard on one hand, and by de Castries on the other, a dramatic conference took place at the latter's command post, unquote. That conference considered the problem that was now between the French and their immediate survival. The drop zone was too small to conceivably be able to take in all the supplies that the defenders needed to stay alive. Planes flying at their minimum possible velocity had only a couple of seconds during which to drop cargo before looping around and trying again. There were two options, either retake Huget 1 with all of the losses that that would entail, or retake all of the Dominiques with the same costs involved, expanding the base in other words, left or right. Dicastries appeared to be playing more of a role in the proceedings now, maybe having recovered some of the drive that had gone out of him in early March. He decided, against the wishes of both Langley and Bijard, but apparently not above their refusals, that it would be H1 and not the Dominiques. Fall says that Langley wrote afterwards that he was quote-unquote dead set against the attack because of the men it would rob from his already practically non-existent reserves. But as far as I can see, it was one or the other or surrender, and every option was going to cost the French army its men. So de Castries ordered at 9 in the morning that they'd have to retake H1 before 2 in the afternoon on the 24th of April. Bijard, as always, had the plan. The main thrust of the attack would come from Major Liesenfeldt's 2nd Foreign Legion Airborne, the newest unit in the valley, already down to just 380 men ready to attack from some 700 when it dropped over the previous week and a half. Airstrikes and artillery were to precede the men, and tanks would accompany them. From Fall, quote, Here, Bijard made the fateful decision not to command the operation himself, but to leave its execution to Major Liesenfeld, whose battalion, after all, would bear the brunt of the attack, unquote. In the past, Bijard had taken personal control because there were multiple units involved. This time, it was just Liesenfeld's battalion, and the indomitable major didn't want to be breathing down his colleague's neck. Likewise, Bijard had spent the whole night watching the death of the garrison on H1, and he was falling down tired. In any case, the plan was pretty straightforward. Just like in the attack on Alien 1, firepower would be used to conserve manpower. Otherwise, it was a straight shot. But Jap, now with long experience of these French counterattacks, had spent the morning and the early afternoon getting ready. He'd laid down fields of fire on the parts of the airfield the French would have to cross, all the more murderous because by 2 o'clock the steel plates were too hot from the sun to lay down on, even under machine gun fire, and had his artillerymen set their sights on the approaches to H1. 
As soon as the attack stepped off, every company involved was taken under withering fire from Jap's men, now experts in the war they were fighting. From Fall, quote, the surviving enemy gunners had crawled out of their dugouts and, supported by some of the remaining Viet Minh machine gun nests in the no-man's land north of H2, began to lay down an impenetrable defensive fire in the best traditions of trench warfare of World War I. For all practical purposes, the attack on H1 had already failed. The communists now knew fully what was happening, and their artillery, though in part shooting blindly, joined the fray, as did their flak, which had already shot down a French Navy fighter bomber." Unquote. Worse than all of that, the attack was headless. Liesenfeld had positioned himself on H2 to command the attack by radio in the same way that Bijard had done on Elion. The difference being that Liesenfeld was in a bunker, while Bijard had been in an open foxhole, able to see things clearly. The other thing, of course, was that Bijard had had his radios tuned to the correct frequencies, while Liesenfeld's men, when they called on their commander, got nobody. The Major, hearing nothing, figured that everything was going pretty well. Bijard, at the time, unfortunately, had fallen asleep. De Castries, who'd made a habit of listening in on all ongoing operations from his headquarters, picked up on the disparity between Liesenfeld's silence and the desperate calls for help from his companies. De Castries rang up Bijard and told him from fall, quote, I have the impression that the attack doesn't carry the proper punch. Go on over and have a look at what is going on, unquote. Bijard hopped into a jeep and crossed the whole camp, weaving through the Viet Minh shelling all the while, and ran into Liesenfeld's dugout. From fall, quote, to Bijard's question as to how the operation went, the commander of the 2nd Foreign Legion Airborne answered, It must be going all right. I'm not getting anything from my units. Bijard turned to Liesenfeld's radio set, looked at it, fiddled with it, and in his own words began to howl with rage, unquote. Bijard, now with a working radio, threw Liesenfeld out of the bunker and took over. He listened to the various reports, saw the failure already manifest, and called everybody back in. As devastating as the loss of the Dominiques back in March, the failed counterattack on H1 hollowed out Langley and De Castries last reserve unit, the 2nd Legion Airborne. 150 of its 380 men had been killed or wounded, reducing the battalion to a lone company. Langley sacked Liesenfeld, assigning him to a chair in a bunker somewhere, and merged his unit with the other Legion Airborne outfit, and renamed it the Composite Foreign Legion Airborne Battalion. The battle for the outlying Hugets had ended, taking all of two weeks in the middle of April and ending decisively with Liesenfeld's failure on the 24th. The French had lost it, and the main position was now smaller than it had ever been. The defenders no longer possessed of the men they'd need to retake any of their lost strongpoints and expand it again. It was an inauspicious omen for men elsewhere in the world. The conference in Geneva began the very next day. Again, Geneva plays its part in the world's constant endeavors for peace. Nineteen delegations from both sides of the Iron Curtain attend a conference on the many Far Eastern problems. Mr. Chow Enlai, Prime Minister of China, arrives. Next is Mr. John Foster Dulles, America's Secretary of State. Mr. Molotov, Russia's Foreign Minister, and Mr. Gromyko enter the Palais des Nations. Now, Monsieur Bido, the French Foreign Minister who will press for Anglo-American help in Indochina. Mr. Anthony Eden, whose memory must surely harken back to the days before the war, when he figured so prominently in the same building when it housed the ill-fated League of Nations. So violently do East and West seem opposed on such matters as the future of Korea and, of course, Indochina, that it'll take great patience and wisdom from all if satisfactory solutions are to be found. Japside, saddled with the assault of these defensive positions, wasn't having a much better time of the battle, for all that they'd swapped to a slower style of siege fighting. 
The Viet Minh regiments were filling up with raw recruits to replace the thousands of men lost in March and April. Jap assigned each handful of new soldiers to a veteran who had survived the two months in the valley, conducting on-the-job training on a massive scale. French aerial interdiction of Jap supply routes wasn't cutting off his logistics anything like what it would have taken to break the siege, but shortfalls in food, medicine, and all the other necessaries of war were taking serious tolls on his soldiers' morale. In Jap's own words, talking about the end of the battle for the Hugh Jets, quote, However, the principal trait of that phase of the battle has been the violent character of the combat. The battle having lasted a very long time, more troops, who had to fight without interruption, become fatigued and are worn and are faced with great nervous tension. Our forces have not been able to avoid decimation, which requires rapid reorganization and reinforcement. Among our cadres and combatants, there appear negative rightist tendencies, whose manifestations are the fear of having many killed, the fear of suffering casualties, of facing up to fatigue, difficulties, privations, etc." Unquote. As Fall writes, quote, "...apparently in that latter part of April 1954, both sides of Dien Bien Phu were in the position of punch-drunk fighters, each determined to outlast the other in the hope of winning the battle by a technical knockout, if by no other way." Unquote. It would take the Viet Minh until the 1st of May to recover from the fight over the Hugettes and to begin to move on the last French points. The French would get a short reprieve from the fighting, but not much else. Supply drops, bad as soon as the monsoon started at the end of March, got worse. The American CAT pilots refused to fly for a week starting the 24th of April because of the thickness of the Viet Minh flak, further reducing the daily tonnage and contributing to Lang Ley's decision to put the garrison on half rations at the end of the month. By the 29th, de Castries reported to Hanoi that all positions on the base were fighting in mud to an average depth of three feet. By the 1st of May, the French had managed to stockpile three days of food, a night and a half of shells, and 2,900 combatants on the strong points, a third of what they'd used to fend off Jap back in March. And in many cases, those men were missing an eye or even an arm, and had returned to their trenches. The Viet Minh commander-in-chief, meanwhile, had bumped his number of men up to exactly what he'd had during that first attack, and his firepower was even greater. Morale in the garrison held through the end of April, propped up largely by the thought that the Viets had it worse and were losing significantly more men than the defenders. Faith was kept that a solution would be reached at Geneva, that a relief column would arrive, a plan that Cogni and Navarre, now barely on speaking terms, were not executing well, or that the Viet Minh would finally break. The other thing giving morale a tiny boost in the fortress, along with that the Viet Minh dialed down their attacks for a week, was that de Castries got a little more dispensation from Cogni for metal distribution, and the Foreign Legion celebrated its biggest holiday right at the end of the month. Almost all of the senior commanders in the base got their ranks bumped up by one. De Castries became a general, Ling Lei became a full colonel, and so on. And on the 29th at 6 p.m., the nurse, Genevieve, received orders to report to the headquarters of the 2nd Airborne Group, which Lang Lei had been using as his own office. The paratroops had sort of adopted Genevieve, giving her a cut-down battle dress uniform once it was clear that she'd be in the base for the duration, and Fall writes that she'd get invitations like this one, to coffee or to bridge or what have you, and that they were a pretty welcome change from the sweltering, stagnant swamp of the hospital. Quote, But when she lifted the blackout curtain and entered Lang Lei's dugout, an unexpected scene awaited her. There were, in addition to Lang Lei, de Castries, Lieutenant Colonel Lemunier, who was the head of the Foreign Legion at the time, and Bijard and Vadeau, rising from benches and chairs as she entered. De Castries stepped forward, picked up something, and said, Genevieve, I've got something for you. And then he pronounced the French ritual formula to be used when a high decoration is being awarded. By virtue of the powers conferred upon me, 
and pinned a croix de guerre with palms, and next to it the white enamel cross with the blood-red ribbon of the Knight's Cross of the Legion of Honor. It had not been easy to hold that ceremony, for almost no one had any medals at Dien Bien Phu. Langley himself managed to find a battered croix de guerre in one of his own footlockers, and one of his lieutenants kindly lent his recently awarded Legion of Honor for the ceremony. There was no one at Dien Bien Phu who did not feel that Genevieve de Gallard had earned her decorations, unquote. It was also for some of those men who had been present at Lai Chao when the French high command back in Saigon had denied Croix de Guerre for the women of the BMC who had trekked out to the listening post, a small blow for the meddling of the women stuck in the wrong parts of the war. What followed the next day, April 30th, was what Fall calls the holiest of holidays for the French Foreign Legion, which had among the able-bodied and the wounded some 2,400 members in the main position. Amplifying the potential of the celebrations, the American CIA pilots agreed to return, after a week, to the flying boxcars, that is, on that day, April 30th, in response to French promises, which were never kept, that they'd make more of an effort to suppress Jap's flak. With or without that suppression, though, the planes managed to boot 212 tons of supplies into the air above the valley, though estimates vary as to whether three-quarters of that, or just one-third, was recoverable. In any case, it was welcome. The day was also marked by the success of a raid on a Viet Minh trench south of Elian II, that is, south of Elian entirely, out in the open, by a unit of the amalgamated Foreign Legion paratroops. A small group of men had crept out into Viet Minh lines, blown up a bunker, and destroyed a significant quantity of ordnance. What nobody mentioned when the raid was reported to the Castries and Lang Le was that the legionnaires had headed outside the wire to collect two misdropped crates of vino gel, the French army wine concentrate. The men had been allotted just a bottle of wine per platoon for Cameroon, and they'd figured that that was no good. Cameroon, named after the Spanish word for shrimp, was in typical French and Legion fashion a celebration of a massacre, same as the Alamo for Texans. I'm willing to bet that most of you don't know this, but when Mexico was finally getting the structure of a liberal democratic republic in place, in the 1860s, under the first ever indigenous Latin American president, Juan Benito Juarez, Mexican conservatives and monarchists were desperate. So they contacted the French emperor, Napoleon III, and asked him to make Mexico a French client state. Napoleon agreed, and he sent over Maximilian of Habsburg, the Archduke of Austria, to be the new emperor of Mexico. Maximilian was by all accounts a pretty nice guy, a reformer, and maybe would have done right by Mexico. But he was also hopelessly naive about the country that had just finished up 50 years of fighting for real independence and some measure of democracy. And the expedition that he went with ended after five years, with Maximilian and his family getting hung from a hill near where I used to live. Part of that expedition, supported by the French, was the Battle of Cameroon, where a company of legionnaires holed up in an hacienda and held off tens of times their numbers in Mexicans before being slaughtered nearly to the last man. What a holiday. From Fall, quote, but the main ceremony was at the command post of the 13th Half Brigade, with Lieutenant Colonel Le Mounier acting as the host in his capacity as both the most senior legionnaire in the fortress and the legionnaire with the longest service in all of North Vietnam. Le Mounier, miraculously impeccable in a full-dress uniform with perfectly shined shoes, read the traditional Cameroon proclamation over a radio hookup that could be heard throughout the fortress, and then proceeded with the honorary induction into the Foreign Legion of a few non-legionnaires, another ancient tradition which permitted the person so honored to wear his Foreign Legion rank insignia, no matter how exalted his real rank was. According to tradition, each person so honored was presented to the legion by a legionnaire who acted as his godfather and whose serial number, followed by the suffix beasts, would become his own. That day, de Castries and Langley became honorary corporals of the half brigade, and Bijard and Genevieve de Gallard became privates first class. Mademoiselle de Gallard's godfather was Major Vadeau's Batman. 
As she walked out, she turned to him and said, If we ever get out of this alive, I'll pay you a bottle of champagne no matter where we meet. In 1963, she was riding in an automobile in Paris with her husband when she recognized the legionnaire walking along the sidewalk. She stopped, embraced him, and made good on her promise. The hopes and fears of the world center on Geneva as the first sessions dealing with Korean and Indo-Chinese problems get underway. Spearheading the Reds are Foreign Minister Molotov and his deputy Andre Gromyko, from whom Francis Georges Bidot seeks a ceasefire in Indochina for the evacuation of wounded in the embattled garrison of Dien Bien Phu. Anthony Eden voices Britain's wait-and-see policy as Red China's Cho Enlai demands equality at the conference and warns America to stay out of Asia, a stand which is opposed by State Secretary Dulles. Jap launched the third phase of the general offensive on May 1st, catching the French a little off guard given that it was the biggest holiday in the communist calendar and the Viet Minh positions had been appropriately festooned with red banners and other decorations. But as Fall writes, quote, As there had been on Saturday, March 13th, there was in the air a deadly smell of general attack, and this time the French knew that they would not be able to resist it, unquote. Thanks to exceptionally high drop weights on the previous nights, the French had three days of food and maybe a night and a half of shells for all the various artillery pieces that could be brought online. The French awaited what would come, and as night fell, more than a hundred Viet Minh pieces roared to life, firing on the entire French area and plowing under Claudine, Huguet, and Elian in particular. Communist artillery was coming so thick by this night of May 1st that it could simply maintain a wall between the main French position and the hills of Dominique and Elian under attack meaning that whoever was up on those heights was totally alone. At 8 in the evening, nearly 15,000 Viet Minh in two divisions stormed the last French hills in the east, Dominique and Elian, facing at best a hundred or so defenders on each. The Algerians and Thais on D3, with a short company from the 6th BPC, fought until they were out of ammunition and then went silent. On E1, the half-strength 2nd Battalion of the 1st Parachute Regiment did the same. Both were reported completely taken at 2 in the morning on the 2nd of May. Over in the Hugets, H5 probed earlier that day and reduced to just 29 men by the artillery preparations went under, submerged by the 7,000 men of the 308th People's Army Division. By 6 in the morning, E2 and E4 were holding, as was Huget 4, that position's farthest point out to the west, right on top of Claudine. But the garrison was on the brink. Losing D3 and E1 made the other positions practically indefensible, and every part of the base directly observable by the Viet Minh, very nearly open to a direct attack. From Fall, quote, Long before midnight, the senior commanders in Dien Bien Phu knew that the final assault had come, and that, short of a miracle, they would not be able to resist it. The message sent to Hanoi at 8 o'clock simply reeled off the obituary of strong points fallen or attacked, and of units destroyed, and added the comment, quote, No more reserves left. Fatigue and wear and tear on the units terrible. Supplies and ammunition insufficient. Quite difficult to resist one more such push by communists, at least without bringing in one brand new battalion of excellent quality." Unquote. The latter point was again stressed in a personal message sent by Castries to Cogni at a quarter to midnight. Quote, in any case, extremely heavy losses require as of tomorrow night a new solid battalion. Urgent reply requested. Unquote. And unquote. Cogni there in Hanoi finally made a snappy decision. He would commit the last airborne battalion he had on hand, the first colonials under one Captain Guy de Bazine de Bazon, on the night of May 2nd, if the defenders could hold out that long. For the men at headquarters with de Castries and Lang Lei, counterattacks with the shortage of men on hand were unthinkable. 
The night of May 1st had seen 28 killed, 303 missing, 168 wounded, in addition to the territory lost. An entire effective battalion was gone, and while the plan was to replace it, everyone knew how well the drops had been going. There was no way they'd get 800 men the next night, when they had barely ever gotten 100 before. As Jap recounts those events, quote, This phase of attacks began on the night of May 1. We swiftly wiped out the enemy, who was still controlling half of Hill C-1, and occupied this position. On the same night, we quickly annihilated positions 505 and 505A at the feet of the eastern hills situated on the left bank of the Nam Yum River. In the west, position 311A was swiftly liquidated. In the southern subsector, we put out of action part of the enemy troops stationed northeast of Hong Kong." By sunrise on May 2nd, LEN-1, Dominique 3, and Huget 5 were in Viet Minh hands. That left only LEN-4, behind E-1, and LEN-2, now out alone facing E-1 in the north and Old Baldy and the Funny Mountain in front, with only a handful of men left to await what came next. Dominique was reduced to two points. D-4, now known as Sparrowhawk, on the near side of the Nam Yum, which cut through the position, and D-5, very small and very alone, on the far side of the river, not close to any convenient crossing. Huget was splintered. Two and three were tight to the airstrip, four a long ways off to the west, with H-5 already captured between it and the rest of the French positions. De Castries, Langley, and their commanders did their best to shuffle men around, but there just weren't many to be had. As Fall reports, quote, A decade later, Dr. Grouan still recalled his amazement at the sight of heavily bandaged men requesting to be returned to their units. If we've got a croak, we might as well croak with our buddies, was a view which they expressed very often. One Captain Luciani was a good example of what was meant. Wounded three times, he was now commanding H-4 with a heavy bandage over one of his eyes, which had been removed, unquote. Everyone eagerly awaited the drop of the first BPC, but only 107 men of the 800-man battalion made it in that night. For the moment, too, Jap waited and continued to gather his strength for a final push. The attack didn't come on the night of May 2nd or the night of May 3rd, and the French saw another company of the 1st BPC arrive, under Jean Pouget, who became Captain Glatinier in Jean Lartigue's The Centurions. The monsoon rains poured into the fortress too, with each strongpoint working feverishly to patch up dugouts and trenches that were collapsing like sandcastles under an encroaching tide. The situation was as grim as it had ever been in Dien Bien Phu as May the 4th dawned, and it would not get any better. Surprisingly though, morale in the fortress was high. Lieutenant Colonel Trancart of the Parachute Mafia reported afterwards that the winnowing down of the survivors to those nearly 3,000 men then on the battlements, undernourished, many or most already wounded once or twice, quote, produced a combination of extraordinary physical misery, unquote, and perversely high spirits. Everyone in the fortress knew, from the French to the Vietnamese to the Africans to the melange of legionnaires, that they were the only thing between France and defeat in Indochina. What's more, the men still held out for some sort of American air intervention, or the swift approach of Colonel de Crevecourt's Condor column from Laos. As Fall writes, quote, The main theme repeated throughout the shrinking fortress was, they simply cannot let us lose the war, unquote. Fall mentions one other possible cause of the undiminished morale of the men. With no reserves and no relief, virtually every one of them had been working, fighting, or on alert nonstop for days, and virtually all of them were taking the French army amphetamine, Maxiton, to stay awake. The officer corps was more morose. They kept the news private so as not to depress the men, but they knew from Navarre that no American Operation Vulture was in the offing, and by radio they could tell that the Condor Column hadn't made any appreciable progress in a week. Nobody had decided to save them or even to try, as far as they could tell. 
Dicastries at this point made another appeal to Hanoi, saying, quote, I insist once more that I also be given a fairly large credit for decorations. I can't do anything to boost the morale of my men who are being asked to accomplish superhuman efforts. I don't even dare to go to see them with empty hands, unquote. With provisional permission, but with no physical medals forthcoming, that's what Dicastries ended up doing. The now general headed into Dr. Grilwan's charnel house to visit the wounded, at a loss for anything more effective to do, with all of his men committed and waiting for what would come. In fact, says Fall, now that the daring do of the paratroops was out of the question, Dicastri's aristocratic fortitude came into its own. At the hospital, the old cavalry commander asked Dr. Grilwan to take him to see the most seriously wounded cases, and the doctor told him that everyone in the hospital was most seriously wounded. From Fall, quote, Whereupon de Castries undertook to visit literally every wounded in the hospital complex, no matter how remote the dugout or niche. He had no medals to hand out. Thus, the decoration ceremony was simply one of touching the man's shoulder and telling him that the citation would be entered into his record, unquote. On the night of this same day, the 4th of May, Jap came for Hugh 4. The post, cut off from the rest of the Hugets tight to the airstrip by the already captured H-5, was garrisoned by some 80 mixed legionnaires and Moroccan riflemen. Jap opened as usual with a brutal artillery preparation, and then threw 3,000 Viet Minh at the point. At 3.30 in the morning, the last officer in the position, Luciani, the young man who'd left the hospital to rejoin his unit, minus an eye, and wounded two other times besides, radioed headquarters. He told DeCastries that there were 10 men left with him, but that he could see the Viet Minh pouring into his trench. From Fall, quote, His death cry, as the enemy assault team shot him down, was clearly audible over the radio set. You see, DeCastri said to the recently arrived Captain Puget of the 1st Colonial Airborne, there goes another strong point. There's nothing we can do about it. We are just constantly shrinking, unquote. The man in charge of the Hugets, Major Girard, one of the parachute mafia, decided to counterattack in the morning. The chances were slim, but every remaining strong point was now key to the defense, and experience had taught that a quick attack, before the Viet Minh could get a handle on the new position or retrain their artillery pieces, was the only kind that had a shot. Girard scraped up a few dozen paratroops and Moroccans and charged H-4. From Fall, quote, But a counterattack of 100 men, no matter how fanatically motivated, against an enemy of over 2,000 does not stand a chance. The sheer miracle of it was that the small band managed to fight its way forward through the communications trenches from H-3 to H-4 and actually reached the fringe of H-4 before it was beaten back with heavy losses by a curtain of communist fire. As General de Castries had foreseen, H-4 had been lost for good. Its loss cost the French 14 killed, including two officers, 58 wounded, and 150 missing. And there were now 1,260 seriously wounded soldiers in the underground hospitals." Unquote. During the day on the 5th of May, General Cogni, General Navarre, and Colonel de Crivecourt, which means heartbreak, head of the French forces in Laos, the latter two having flown in, all convened in Hanoi. Navarre hoped to get the whole of the 1st Colonial Parachute Battalion into the valley in the hopes that it would then be able to hold out until a ceasefire could be reached at Geneva. Colonel de Crivecourt was ordered to move a relief column he'd had waiting some dozens of miles out towards the base, the Condor Column, with the idea that if the defenders had to break out, they would have someone there to meet them. Fall says that this was, basically, no decision at all, since de Castries was charged with deciding when and if a breakout could be attempted. And finally, the men decided to relay orders that had come in from France. That the garrison would not be allowed to raise the white flag, would not be allowed to participate in a formal act of surrender, since that would tarnish the valiant defense that they had made so far. In the valley, there was little action during the day, besides the struggle to keep bunkers intact under the rains and Jap's intermittent artillery. 
out on a lane too, where the sounds of undermining had died down in the last few days. Trepidation that the Viet Minh were about to blow the mine gallery was high. When picks and shovels started up again in the afternoon, relief was great, and the garrison on the point decided to send out a patrol to see if they could blow the entrance to the tunnel and seal it off, at least for a couple of days. The handful sent out were shot down to the last man. At nine in the evening, Cogney wired a short message to DeCastries in the valley. It authorized the base commander to attempt to break out towards Decrevecourt's column when the defense had become impossible. As Fall records too, quote, in the third paragraph, Cogney, in spite of the personal character of the telegram, employed a tone more likely to fit a later open record than to be of comfort to a beleaguered commander compelled to make an agonizing decision under pressure. I need not underline value in every field and perspectives offered by prolonging resistance on the spot, which at present remains your glorious mission, unquote and unquote. DeCastries briefed his senior officers on Albatross, the name of the breakout operation meant to meet Decrevecourt's column, which all of them already knew was nowhere near the valley. Any force that made it out would have to travel long miles over highland paths to meet it, fighting the Viet Minh the entire way. DeCastries accordingly instructed each of his officers to consider who would be capable and who would need to be left behind. The last men to ever drop into the fortress did so on the night of the 5th, 100 more men from the 1st Colonial Airborne. The total over three nights had reached 383 men out of the battalion's total of 876. 155 of those who jumped were Vietnamese. Jap had been laying off since the night of the 4th and hadn't launched a major attack since the night of the 1st. The garrison, as the 6th of May dawned, was in bright spirits, considering. Another hundred men had come in, and probes had been fended off the Elians and the Hugets during the night. When the aerial photographs dropped in from Hanoi, however, it became clear that each of the French positions now faced dozens of approach trenches, tendrils stretching out from the rings of Viet Minh works, clearly signaling an attack. Out on E2, the digging had now definitively stopped, and by using the geophones, the men on the point could hear the sound of tramping feet, what were in fact hundreds of Baudoy shuttling 3,000 pounds of dynamite to the end of the tunnel, directly beneath the French. From Fall, quote, That morning, many of the communist guns found it prudent to remain silent so as not to reveal their positions. But finally, the day of reckoning had also come for the gallant Americans from Civil Air Transport, who were flying the supply runs. Piloting a C-119 boxcar, Captain James B. McGovern had become a legend in Indochina just as he had been a legend in China during World War II. A bearded man and so huge, his nickname was Earthquake Magoon after a character in the Little Abner comic that he used a specially built pilot's chair. McGovern that morning flew a full load of ammunition. His co-pilot was Wallace Buford, another American, and the rest of the crew was French. Both men knew the Dien Bien Phu run well. In fact, that morning McGovern was flying his 45th mission over the valley, and his wingman, Steve Cusack, with whom this writer had flown supply missions in Indochina in May 1953, was equally experienced. Thus far that morning, no plane had been hit seriously, and for once there was plenty of flak suppression. Yet as McGovern eased in for the final run over the drop zone, Steve Cusack suddenly heard his voice over the radio saying, I've got a direct hit. Indeed, one of the engines was squirting oil badly, and Cusack saw McGovern feathering it quickly. While serious, that incident was not as such fatal, since the C-119 is built with sufficient reserve power to keep on flying for a time on one engine. But another Soviet 37mm shell hit the stricken plane in one of its tail booms, and now the plane was badly out of control. With its six tons of ammunition aboard, the airplane was indeed a gigantic bomb, and its crash and explosion inside Dien Bien Phu would have been a major disaster. As McGovern and Buford wrestled with the controls of their planes, McGovern's voice could be heard, asking Cusack to point out a low ridge, but it was already too late for any further maneuvering. It was difficult to tell later whether the words, 
Looks like this is it, son, which Cusack heard from McGovern's plane were addressed to him, who survived, or to Wally Buford, the co-pilot who died with McGovern a few seconds later, when the heavily loaded plane cartwheeled and exploded in Viet Minh territory, unquote. The French artillery heading into that afternoon had only three hours' worth of shells, and less if the fighting came on heavy. Drops during the day had all fallen outside of the lines, and the supply stayed the same. De Castries all the same hadn't lost all hope. The misdrop shells and ammunition had fallen just outside the French wire, where the defenders could get at it during the night. If the other 500 men of the 1st Colonial Airborne could be dropped, if the Viet Minh let things go one more night, if the defenders could collect those crates and pallets, they might live through yet another one of Jap's major assaults. And if they did that, the great Viet Minh general might have to take another week or two off to reconsolidate, as he had after the attacks on the outlying strong points and the Five Hills. In those two weeks, who knows how many men or how much ammunition could be supplied to the French. If they could hold on another 12 hours, they might hold on another two weeks, and from there, who knew? At an afternoon staff meeting, though, with de Castries and Langley, a top-priority communication came in from Hanoi. Langley read it and then read it aloud to the officers there assembled. French intelligence had managed to place an operative in Ho Chi Minh's highest circle of advisors, and that source had now reported that Jap's general attack, meant to stop at nothing less than total control of the valley, was set to step off in the evening of May 6th, in just a couple of hours' time. Everyone knew what that meant. Langley pulled his last bottle of cognac from a reserve and passed it around. Not quite defeated yet, though, the airborne colonel who'd been running the show for the last month gave one last set of orders. We must hang on. We must force a draw. On the other side, they're just as exhausted as we are. Captain Hervouet, head of the tanks in the fortress and who had each of his forearms broken early in the battle, commanding since then in double casts, walked from the meeting to Dr. Groan's dugout at the hospital. He had the surgeon cut the plaster off. If he was riding his little M24 bison one last time, he'd be damn sure he'd be able to drive it. I think that it is needless for me to take too much time to, in the attempt to emphasize the importance I attach to the week through which you just passed. Some of you, of course, were in Geneva. You made your own conclusions as to the personalities that we met, the relationships between them, the degree of sincerity you attached to their words. But one thing is indisputable. For one week of argument and debate that sometimes was, uh, to say the least, intense, never once did we have a recurrence of the old method of merely uh, talking to constituencies in terms of invective and personal abuse and nationalistic abuse. And that in itself is a great gain and one that I hope we shall never lose, because certainly we are going to progress in things of the mind, in things involving policy, only if we discuss differences in objective terms and not in the terms that cause additional antagonism before you get down at all to the subject, to the heart of the subject that is under discussion. I don't mean to say the week was uh, one of such glowing promise that it offers a, uh, a, almost a, a certainty of a new era starting now. 
I do say there was a beginning of this kind made, and if we're wise enough to do our part, it's just possible that something to the great benefit of man may eventuate. Now if I can go from great nationalistic subjects, public subjects, to something that concerns only me and my family, this may not be news, but I got home to be greeted by my daughter-in-law with the statement that if all goes well, I'll be a grandfather for the fourth time next Christmas. <laughs> the rest of the surviving commanders returned to their posts and reviewed the order of battle one last time. At the north of the position, the former D4, now known as Sparrowhawk, holding the near side of the Nam Yum against the rest of Viet Minh held Dominique, were the remnants of the 8th Colonial Airborne under Major Touré. On the left, Major Girard and about 160 Foreign Legion Airborne occupied the last two points in Hugh Jet, 2 and 3, tight to the pocked and cratered airstrip. Further down, Major Nicolas watched the fields to the west with a handful of Legionnaires and Moroccans. Major Clemenson held the heart of the base, Claudine. What was left of the grounded Air Force personnel held the hospital in the south. Out on Elion 4 in the north and Elion 2 in the south, both on the far side of the Nam Yum, Langley and Bijard had placed their last and best of the thousands of paratroops that had floated down into the valley. On E4, Brechignac of the Parachute Light Infantry and the still-surviving Botella of the Vietnamese Airborne held on with the wounded, bandaged, eye-patched last scraps of their units. Out on E2, the most exposed hill to the east, the recently arrived Captain Puget headed up the 1st Colonial Airborne, all just having come in. Elion 3 to the south and behind, right up against the Nam Yum, kept the last Moroccans in reserve and the very few remnants of Bijard's beloved 6th BPC. As Fall writes, quote, At noon, there were on the line on the top of the upper Elians about 750 paratroopers who had been told that they could not expect any infantry reinforcements from inside the fortress, that there would be very little artillery fire to support them, and who were not even assured that there would be enough infantry ammunition if the fight were to go on for any length of time. With a heavy heart, knowing full well that some of their adieus would be final, Bijard and Langley returned to their own command post back in the base." Unquote. As evening came on, so did General Vo Nguyen Jap and the 50,000 men who had fought with him and believed in his belief in final victory. Every gun on every hill on every side belched forth fire and smoke, and the train-like noise of thousands of shells began to thrum, and then to howl, and then to plummet onto the base, falling at every single position with equal fury. For the first time in the battle, lights in the hospital and the underground dugouts went out, the generators in their fuel tanks pierced by a thousand steel needles. Vast swathes of the hospital collapsed entirely, wounded men clawing their way upwards through the mud with their bare hands before turning to unearth their comrades. The initial volley had only just died away when an even more terrifying sound roared to life around the valley for the first time. The Viet Minh had painstakingly moved dozens of Katyusha rocket trucks from the Chinese border onto the hills, never detected and now they rained down their ordnance. An artillery shell could only hold so much explosive, and each of the rockets that each Katyusha sported could carry that much more. The French fortifications, worn down by months of bombardment and rain, imploded all over the camp. Nearly every medical stockpile, every crate of uncollected shells, every ammunition dump, all of them began to blaze under the relentless cacophony of explosions. Claudine reported before long that the majority of its bunkers had collapsed, and all over the base, men huddled in their few remaining dugouts, hoping that the next hit wouldn't be theirs, and they waited for whatever Jack would now choose to throw at them. That blow fell first on Elian at 6.45. A thousand Bodoi boiled out of the trenches, well inside of the wire. From fall, quote, 
For that key attack, General Jap had chosen Infantry Regiment 102 of the 308th People's Army Division, the Iron Division of his army. The 102nd was indeed the crack regiment of perhaps the whole Viet Minh Army, and proudly bore the title of Capital Regiment, which it had earned for its stubborn defense of parts of Hanoi back in 1946 and 47. It now had a key role to play face-to-face -face with Captain Puget's small band of elite French paratroopers, and it was going to play it to the hilt." Unquote. The French, having hoarded their last remaining shells for just this moment, fired every one of their few remaining pieces into the mass of Jap's best infantry on the saddle in front of Eliane II. And when Captain Puget's forward observer called the fire off, the only things left on the slope were bodies and cordite smoke. The Viet Minh, hoping that they would only have to make one last attack, and eager, desperate to turn those hopes into a reality, opened up everything they had on the French artillery in furious retaliation. The last remaining howitzers and artillery pieces disappeared under the barrage. Their French crews, killed a dozen times over in the last two months, finally ceasing to exist entirely. After Elian, Jap's troops hit every position on the perimeter. By 10 o'clock, Claudine was falling apart, with C-5 out in front the farthest position to the west by a long shot. Major Clemenceau, knowing that the first point lost would likely be the beginning of the end, threw the last few dozen men he had at the strong point. Without French artillery to cover those advances, men were just ground up on the approach. But at that moment, writes Fall, quote, the platoon of sappers of the 1st Foreign Legion Infantry pushed forward. In a Foreign Legion parade, which is colorful enough, the sappers themselves represent an unforgettable sight. Chosen from the tallest and biggest men in the outfit, they all wear full beards and a gleaming white leather apron, and, in addition to their weapons, carry a long-handled axe. In combat, of course, they wear the same uniform as everyone else, but their special skills in the handling of different weapons and explosives make them a sort of shock troop for their battalion. Even in as desperate a situation as Claudine was during the night of May 6th, the impact of that small band of elite troops was not lost. Led by the Foreign Legion sappers, the scattered elements of 2nd Company fought their way back into C-5. The sight of the bare-chested and bearded giants was too much even for the tough Viet Minh assault troops of the Iron Division. By 10.30, the Legionnaires were back inside the featureless hollow filled with shell craters and dead bodies that used to be C-5." Unquote. But even that attack was very shortly after proven to be for naught. Claudine 5 and its defenders ceased responding just after midnight. With the perimeter caving into the west, Dien Bien Phu would be reduced to a tiny flattened swamp crowded with tank hulls, airplane shells, and the bodies of the dead and dying if the Elians couldn't be held, as Fall says, literally to the last ditch, the last cartridge, and the last man. Japri doubled his attack on those hills at 10 in the evening. Thrown at E4, the northern position, were six 800-man battalions. All of them ranged against the northeastern side of the stronghold, held by Captain Botella's 5th Vietnamese, then numbering just 30 men. Quote, it was not by accident that the Viet Minh chose to attack a Vietnamese unit first, in the hope that it would be the most likely to crack. Not only did the little Vietnamese paratroopers fail to crack, but they fought with the cold ferocity that one finds when brother fights against brother, unquote. But 30 men can't fight over 4,000, no matter how determined. At 10.30, Captain Botella pulled men off the southern face of the strong point and moved them into the line in the northeast. Brechignac, commanding Botella, called Lang Le for whatever men he could spare. With the Viet Minh holding off of Sparrowhawk, perhaps because it was behind the river, and of Huget so far, Ling Lei stripped them of nearly everything they had and sent the troops marching across the base, dodging incoming shells to the rescue of Elian IV. On E2, the French defenders were barely holding on against a renewed assault. Above the valley, the troop transports were circling, waiting for their opportunity to drop more men in. But with parachute flares all over the battlefield, it would have been suicide to let the men go. It was light or men. Ling Lei left the decision to be jarred, 
Bijard, knowing that the choice would be life or death for the men already on the ground, called one of the last surviving officers of his 6th BPC out on LEN-4, Lieutenant LePage. From Fall, quote, LePage from Bruno, our friends are above you in the air. We've got to stop the fireflies to drop them. Can we do it? There was a brief silence interrupted only by the empty crackling of the voice transmitter as LePage surveyed the situation beyond his parapet. The Viet Minh were within grenade-throwing distance. Then his answer came firmly over the air, punctuated by the noise of the battle around him. Priority to the Fireflies. Out. Unquote. Between that call after 10 and 11 o'clock, officer after officer of the handful left to Bijard's 6th BPC died holding their bunkers. Captain Puget out on Elion 2 had made what preparations he could at each lull in the battle. And then, exactly at 11 o'clock, Elion 2 blew up. Puget, sitting in the amazingly still-intact wine cellar of the old French governor's residence on the north side of the point, felt a tremor in the ground before the entire Viet Minh-facing slope of the hill rocketed into the air and began to rain back down again, the entire line of French defenses now a massive crater facing Old Baldy and the Phony Mountain. Jap had finally detonated his mine shaft. The Viet Minh, having taken a breather for the last few minutes, now surged forward again. The French company on the line had disappeared into the crater, but a sergeant and five other men managed to make their way onto the back lip of it and began firing down on the Viet Minh, blunting their charge. For every man around the point, this was the moment of ultimate contest. If the Viet Minh of the 102nd didn't throw the French off this godforsaken hill, then everything they'd done over the last months, the backbreaking, terrifying work of digging the mine, would have been for naught. Puget and the survivors up top knew that if they failed, only the wounded and captive inside Dien Bien Phu would live to see the dawn. At three in the morning, with his troop count fast dwindling, Puget went back down to the cellar and called Lang Le to ask about reinforcements that Bijard had promised him earlier in the night. His radio operator dead, Puget wasn't able to get through to Lang Le, although he did hear sounds of battle coming through from the two units that were supposed to have been with him on the hill already. In fact, with the Viet Minh's trenches now infiltrating all parts of the French position, even crossing from the COR to Elion had become a difficult fight, and both outfits had only managed to make it to E4 back behind and to the north of Puget, much reduced by the journey. The young, aristocratic captain on Elian II couldn't understand why the higher-ups would abandon him after E2 had held out so long and so well, and when it was still doing so, despite the mine, the Viet Minh finding it impossible to climb over the ruin of the crater in the rain. Remember, too, Puget had only been in Dien Bien Phu for a few days and didn't have the long experience of a battle fought with barely any troops and next to no reserves. He kept calling and eventually reached Major Vado, Chief of Staff to Lamounier, head of the Foreign Legion remnants. From Fall, quote, Vado, during the 55 days of the battle, had established a solid reputation as being completely unflappable. While others would curse over the radio waves or give vent to despair in the headquarters bunker, Vado would go quietly about his business, shifting the last remaining units about on the acetate overlay of his large-scale map, asking a mortar battery here or remaining howitzer section there to expend its last shells on a particularly critical target." Unquote. But even Vado was nearing the end of that endurance. The artillery was down to minutes worth of ammunition, and help that was desperately needed at every point in the position just would not come. It fell to Vado that night to make many of those calls. When the folks on E4 spotted massed Viet Minh making their way over from E1, they called for a barrage of the same kind that had broken up the attack on Puget's position earlier in the evening. Vado was able to give them three rounds. Now Puget was demanding reinforcements and ammunition. Quote, The calm voice of Vado sounded like that of an old teacher trying to explain a difficult problem to a somewhat obtuse student. Come on, be reasonable. You know the situation as well as I do. Where do you want me to find a company? I can't give you a single man or a single shell, unquote. 
At that time, four in the morning, Jean Puget had 35 men able to fight. He weighed his options and told Vadeau that the only thing to do was to abandon his post and try to break out to the point closer to the base, E3. Vadeau nixed that plan and told him, quote, After all, you are a paratrooper, and you must resist to the death, or at least until morning. There was nothing else to be said between the two men. Dien Bien Phu could no longer do anything for martyred Elian II, and Puget no longer had any need for a transmitter. Understood. Out. If you have got nothing to add, I will destroy my set, said Puget. The calm voice of Vado seemed very far away, much farther than the merely 400 meters of shell-pocked mud which actually separated the two men. Vado also stuck to French army protocol. Out for me also, unquote. Just before Puget could switch his radio off and destroy it, a Vietnamese voice broke in, speaking in French. Don't destroy your radio set just yet. President Ho Chi Minh offers you a rendition of the Chant des Partisans. The People's Army radio man, able as his comrades had been through the whole battle, to listen in perfectly easily on French channels, wanted to allow Puget one last irony. The song of the partisans was the anthem of the French resistance, a peen to throwing a foreign invader out of the homeland. From fall, quote, Puget listened to it, from the first verse which spoke of the black crows, that is, the foreign occupiers, flying over the land, to the very last verse, which speaks of black blood drying tomorrow on the roads, and ends on the haunting line, Companions, freedom is listening to us in the night. Then Puget fired three bullets into his set and walked out of his command post, unquote. Puget's men had barely any ammunition left at that point, and along with the captain, they fell back, trench by trench. In their last available line, Puget and the men left to him pulled the bodies in their current trench out and stacked them in front, a last set of macabre sandbags for a last stand against the approaching Viet Minh, just 15 feet away. Puget threw his last hand grenade before one of his Viet Minh counterparts did the same, knocking the captain unconscious. He woke up in the custody of General Vo Nguyen Jap in the morning. Jap himself said of the night's fighting, quote, On May 6th at 5 p.m., our troops attacked Hill A-1. In the preparatory stage, our sappers had dug an underground trench leading to the center of the hill and introduced their one ton of explosives. With the powerful coordination of this explosion, our troops attacked this position from various directions, put out of action the defending unit composed of paratroopers of the Foreign Legion, and occupied this last height." Unquote. Out on E-4, which had seen attack and counterattack the whole night through, there were, as Fall writes, quote, all the surviving heroes of the French paratroops. Brechignac, Botella, Cledic, Farvan Fu, Makoviak, Lepage, and many others, unquote. At dawn, they still held the heights, though they, like Puget had already done, were fast running out of ammunition. Perversely, or unbelievably, the backside of E4 had also become home to a wing of the hospital, housing two airborne surgical teams as well, surrounded by fighting and artillery the whole night through. At 6.30 in the morning, looking over the parapets, the men on the hill could see Viet Minh troops mustering out on Elian 1, just across the saddle, for yet another attack. French artillery was non-existent at that point, and the men on E2 didn't have the bullets to start a fight. So the Viet Minh figured, why hide? The place is Dien Bien Phu in French Indochina. 
The year is 1954. The lonely jungle outpost, surrounded by communist guerrillas and accessible only by air, is doomed. Just as the once mighty French colonial empire in Southeast Asia is doomed. This is the end of eight years of bloody fighting in Vietnam. A shadowy, sinister war that has cost France dearly. Chap soldiers came on at 8 o'clock. The general himself called up the immediate commander of those men and told him, quote, There are signs of confusion among the enemy ranks. They may surrender in numbers, but they also made a sudden attempt at breaking through. Give orders to your men to stick closely to the enemy and not let any one of them escape, unquote. Just after 9 o'clock, E-4's perimeter gave way, and the Baudoy, dressed in the French paratroop uniforms and helmets that had been dropped outside the lines, surged into the point. A handful of officers and troops held onto the command post, and nothing else. At 9.30, Brechignac, head of the point and of the parachute light infantry, reduced to just the men around him, called Bijard and Langley a final time. As Fall writes, the conversation, punctuated by the sounds of battle all around, was like that between Puget and Vadeau hours earlier. Quote, there was no ammunition and no more reserves on E4 and none to be had elsewhere. The battalion commanders on the hill, Brezhnev and Botella, would stay with their men in the position. Dr. Pierre Rouault would also stay on. Such able-bodied officers and men, as would still be capable of it, would attempt to break out. Using for the last time the cover nicknames they had adopted for their radio voice communications, Brezhnev spoke first. Bresh calling Bruno. It's the end. Don't clobber us with artillery. There are too many wounded here. Then it was the turn of Captain Andre Botella. Didi calling Bruno. It's all over. They're at the CP. Goodbye. Tell that guy Lang Lei that we liked him a lot. Then a third, younger voice was heard over the set. It was Botella's remaining staff officer, Monaco-born Lieutenant Jean Armandi. Armandi also had refused to abandon his chief and his wounded comrades on E4, and was going to go down with them as a ship's commander goes down with his vessel. I'm going to blow up the set, said the young voice on E4. And then the radio waves from Elion carried for the last time the war cry of the French paratroops, unquote. The Viet Minh poured into the dugout shortly afterwards. LePage, the young lieutenant who told Bijard to keep the lights coming, was around a bend in the trench when the rest of the officers were captured, escaping and heading back to Langley and Bijard's headquarters. Kicked in mud, he managed to collapse into their bunker. Quote, Langley, who had lived side by side with Bijard through the whole battle, and who had seen him accept unflinchingly the worst setbacks, for the first time saw him react with a sense of personal loss. His beloved 6th Colonial Parachute Battalion, which he had led from the Hell of Tulay, where it had been offered up for sacrifice in 1952 to slow down the Viet Minh advance in northwestern Tonkin, and with which he had on March 28th taken the enemy flak west of Claudine, had died. Bending down over the mud-covered body whom only he could recognize, Bijard took its hand and said quietly, LePage, oh my poor LePage, unquote. In the cold light of morning, De Castries continued preparations for a possible breakout, the evidence of the previous night giving the lie to any possibility of further resistance. The defenders' perimeter had been reduced to just the COR itself. They held the near bank of the Namium on the right, the drainage ditch along the airfield on the left, and were losing ground on Claudine on the bottom left in the morning, when French airplanes gave them just a bit of time to breathe. Decastries called Cogni in Hanoi and obtained permission to abandon the wounded, who would have been incapable of the march. Cogni gave Decastries the go-ahead. Word of a possible breakout ran through the camp, and Jap was not unaware of it either. He knew that the plan was, quote, under cover of night, to break through our encirclement and flee in the direction of Laos. 
A column of paratroopers would withdraw to the southeast, the second made up of legionnaires and North Africans would head for the south, and the third, which included the units defending Hong Kong, would take the western direction. An enemy column would start from Upper Laos to meet these three columns. General de Castries and some units were to remain at Dien Bien Phu with the wounded. We closely watched the intention and preparations of the enemy, and set to our units thus occupying the western positions, the task to tightly control all of the roads and tracks leading from Dien Bien Phu to the Laotian frontier." Unquote. Jep had described de Castries' plans perfectly. Orders went out to the unit commanders that they had to designate only the absolute best of their troops to attempt it, not only in terms of how they had fought, but in terms of those who were healthy enough to survive what would be a grueling jungle trek and fighting retreat. All but one doctor of the medical staff, the wounded, and the exhausted would stay behind, including, as Fall says, many officers and men who had fought magnificently. Quote, While no one could have stopped him from coming along, it was obvious that Colonel Lang Lei, for one, would have collapsed from sheer exhaustion within the first few kilometers, assuming that he would have survived the fighting of the breakout. Sergeant Kubiak, who had been selected to be among those who would attempt the breakout, went to say goodbye to his wounded comrades from the 1st Battalion, 13th Foreign Legion Half Brigade, who would stay behind. Some of them cried, not for fear of their fate, for it was known by then that the communists did not massacre prisoners, but out of shame that they would have to surrender to the enemy. Kubiak remembered one soldier in particular who argued desperately that he could make the trek. One of his legs had been amputated, unquote. Fall says that the element that most of the men, even those to make the breakout attempt, did not know, and what Jap doesn't point out, maybe from a sense of military tact, was that a major fraction of even those men weren't really meant to escape, but to be sacrificed to allow the other part of the body to make it. Bijard, the basis planner to the last, came up with a way to decide who would be who. They would form two columns, one pair of troops under Bichard, since Lang Lei would stay behind. The other made up of legs, under Major Vadeau, who had delivered the bad news to Puget. When the time came to make the dash, they'd draw straws. The column with the long straw would break to the west, and Laos. The short straw would mount a suicidal attack into the east. By noon, final arrangements for that evening were going on in Lang Lei's bunker. Just as they were sitting down to begin, the daily fighter bomber carrying aerial photos roared by and left its package for them. What it showed was that General Jap, very conscious of the breakout scheme, had built a new set of works directly across the path that they'd been planning to take, just south of Claudine, the only direction from which the Viet Minh hadn't yet attacked. They called off the breakout on the spot, leaving only Isabel the option, far to the south. Quote, They embraced and then shook hands before Lang Lei returned to his dugout to burn his personal papers, his official documents, and finally, his beloved red paratroop beret, which he traded against the anonymous hat of an infantryman. In full defiance, Bijard kept his beret high in his head for everyone to see. If they, the Viet Minh, hated the paratroops, so be it. He was one of them to the end." Unquote. There was then the final council to be held. The paratroop mafia met up with Lang Lei one last time to decide between the only two options left. Surrender or fight on, asking for nothing, repeating the Legion's heroics in Mexico at Cameroon. But one of the Legion parachute officers present said, quote, you can do Cameroon with a hundred guys, not with ten thousand, unquote. Pointing out that a valiant defense didn't mean much for the thousands of men already nearly drowning in Groan's hospital. Resisting until being killed or captured also meant condemning some or all of those men to very inglorious deaths. The paratroop council then considered one other option, riskier than surrender, but less shameful to their military sensibilities also. They could, without raising any white flags, call General Jap on the radio and tell him that everyone in the position would cease fire at 5.30 in the evening. With the parachute mafia resolved that this third was the best option, 
They broke up at one in the afternoon, and Bijard, Langley, Badeau, and the head of the Legion Airborne, Le Mounier, trooped off to tell de Castries. The meeting in the old cavalryman's bunker was, Fall writes, brief and dignified. De Castries agreed with their assessment and gave Langley the go-ahead to contact Jap. Quote, There was little left to say. De Castries was preoccupied with what would happen to Bijard, whose very name was hated by the Viet Minh. There were many accounts to be settled between Bijard and his 6th Parachute Battalion on one hand and the enemy on the other. Turning to him, de Castri said, My poor Bruno, you should try and get away now with a few of your men. The Viets would be only too happy to get you. Bijard refused and said something to the effect that he would attempt to get away only if it meant a general breakout, but not if it meant leaving his men behind. For the last time, he rendered a formal military salute to de Castries, then shook his hand and left the room with all the other officers save Langley. Upon arriving in his dugout, Bijard destroyed all his remaining personal effects and notes, and then carefully rolled a silk escape map of the northwestern mountain region around one of his ankles. It might come in handy later." Unquote. Down on Isabel, de Castries' chief of staff called Leland, Colonel Leland, who was running the post down there, and gave him the option to join the main position in ceasing fire or trying for a breakout on his own. Leland opted to try to escape. In the afternoon, the Moroccans on E3, the last of the Elians, broke and walked down, waving their turbans into the Viet Minh lines. The small posts that the French had been guarding on the far sides of the bridges over the Nam Yum went under just after 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Lieutenant Allaire, holding one of those positions, radioed in for a last time, saying simply, They're coming at us without shooting. On the backside of the hill that made up Elian 4, which had already fallen, a tiny number of paratroops from Bijard's outfit were waiting to be overrun defending the hospital wing there. Farr writes that, quote, here again the enemy had shown some of his surprising frontline chivalry, unquote. When the Viet Minh took the triage center out in front, they had the wounded extricate themselves and walk down to the bigger ancillary hospital to let the men there know they were coming, avoiding involving the hospital in more fighting. Our old friend Sergeant Kubiak, survivor of Beatrice, water carrier for Hujet, was on the line in the south end of Claudine when a shell came in and mangled his leg, throwing him into the deep water of his trench. A passing Viet Minh came upon him, and was readying to shoot him when some other bullet found the Baudoy, who collapsed on top of Kubiak, protecting him until Jap's stretcher-bearers picked him up in the morning. At 4.30 in the afternoon, Langley's chief of staff began calling the strong points in turn to let them know that everything would cease fire after 5. From Fall, quote, In some cases, notably on Claudine, it was later distinctly remembered that he had added a phrase formally forbidding the raising of white flags. The tone employed by the chief of staff in his last message was deliberately terse and curt. That was the only way he could communicate without letting his listener hear that he was crying, unquote. De Castries, meanwhile, made one last call back to Cogni and Hanoi. Quote, unquote, We're submerged. The three strong points east of the Nam Yum have now fallen. I don't know anymore where my wounded are, and my unit commanders are trooping around me asking what to do next. We're now under the fire of the Katyusha rockets. My men are simply automatons, falling apart from lack of sleep, unquote. Hanoi came back, quote, let the battle die, and let Leland make a try for Albatross. We won't let you down. Thanks for the handsome defense, unquote. Cogni added, quote, Don't mess up your magnificent defense by hoisting the white flag. You're going to be submerged, but no surrender, no white flag, unquote. Dicastes responded, All right, General. I only wanted to preserve the wounded. And again, Yes, however, I do have a piece of paper. I haven't got the right to authorize you to capitulate. Well, you'll do as best you can. But this must not end by a white flag. What you have done is too fine for that. You understand, old boy? DeCastries understood. They chatted on briefly, and then at 5.30, as Langley was calling Jap, DeCastries finished, I'm blowing up the installations. 
the ammunition depots are already exploding. Au revoir. And Cogni finished, well then, au revoir, old boy. The men made their own arrangements, firing every weapon they could directly into the ground, bursting them and leaving them inoperable for the Viet Minh. The crew of the last operable tank drained its oil pan and then ran it until the engine fell apart. The gunners buried their breech blocks and dropped white phosphorus down their barrels. Ling Lei's call to Jap made, towards six o'clock, the flip-flop of Viet Minh sandals could be heard in trench after trench, dugout after dugout, before the Bodoy soldier himself would pop up, addressing the French either with Didi Malen, go, go, quick, or Sorte, get out, and another strong point's defenders would file out of the base and into Jap's custody. In 10 minutes, the Viet Minh had filtered into the whole base, and at 5.40, they raised the red flag over to Castri's bunker. Jap's account of these critical moments is pretty disappointing. Quote, At 3 p.m., our troops received orders to seize this opportunity to launch a general attack on the fortified entrenched camp without waiting for the night. From the east and west, our divisions coordinated their actions and struck directly at the enemy's command post. Though the enemy had still about 10,000 men left, he was completely demoralized. Wherever our troops went, the enemy soldiers raised white flags and surrendered. At 5.30 p.m., we occupied the command post. General DeCastries and all of his staff were captured. All the enemy troops stationed at Dien Bien Phu came out and surrendered. They were taken prisoner and were kindly treated. Our flag, bearing the slogan, Determined to fight and determined to win, was raised aloft over the Dien Bien Phu plain, unquote. Again, that's disappointing in the sense that it's been well-researched and well-corroborated that the only men who raised anything resembling a white flag that day were the Moroccans out on Elyon 3. And fair enough for them. With the river at their backs and Jap's troops closing in well before 5.30 and Lang Lay's phone call, they wouldn't have had the option to nobly allow the Viet Minh in. By that time in the afternoon, they would have been nobly and decisively dead. Down on Isabel, the fight went on until the early morning, schemes and radio calls to Hanoi for the breakout occupying much of the day, but the attempt itself ran into trench systems that Jap had also built in the south for just that purpose, and some five or ten men made it into the jungle, the others meeting up with the rest of Jap's prisoners on the next day. When the Battle of Dien Bien Phu finally ended, some 10,000 Frenchmen emerged into DRVN custody. How to make 10,000 out of Lang Lay and de Castries 2,500 or so combatants? The wounded, the non-combatant military personnel at headquarters, and, most of all, the fully 4,000 rats of the Nam Yum who had accumulated by the battle's end, internal deserters in the French camp. And even as the men who survived Dien Bien Phu were preparing for the 500-mile march and months-long captivity that would in the end kill half of them, recompense, perhaps, for the half of the Viet Minh POWs who died inside the base in French custody, and a story you can find in Jean Lartigue's novel, The Centurions, the machinery of grief and recrimination was starting up in metropolitan France. The news of the defeat, with the time difference, reached Paris sometime around noon. At 4.45, Prime Minister Joseph Laniel addressed the National Assembly. Commentary comes from Fall, quote, end quote, The government has been informed that the central position of Dien Bien Phu has fallen after 20 hours of uninterrupted violent combat. As he said those words, his voice broke. There was an audible gasp in the audience, and in a clatter of seats, the legislators, the visitors, and the press rose to their feet with the exception of the 95 communists. Laniel continued, The enemy has wanted to obtain the fall of Dien Bien Phu prior to the opening of the conference on Indochina. He believes that he could strike a decisive blow against the morale of France. He has responded to our goodwill, to France's will for peace, by sacrificing thousands of his soldiers to crush under their number the heroes who, for 55 days, have excited the admiration of the world. 
France must remind her allies that for seven years now, the army of the French Union has unceasingly protected a particularly crucial region of Asia and has alone defended the interests of all. All of France shares the anguish of the families of the fighters of Dien Bien Phu. Their heroism has reached such heights that universal conscience should dictate to the enemy, in favor of the wounded and of those whose courage entitles them to the honors of war, such decisions as will contribute more than anything to establish a climate favorable to peace." Unquote and unquote. With those incredibly self-serving distortions of the facts, Laniel ended his talk. French radio canceled all programs and played Hector Berlioz's Requiem for the Dead. Le Mans correspondent Hanoi was livid, quote-unquote, We'll show the people, the people of France above all, unquote, he cabled from Hanoi. Quote, they have to be shown what their neglect, their incredible indifference, their illusions, their dirty politics have led to. And how best may we show them? By dying, so that honor at least may be saved. Our dead of Dien Bien Phu died, I claim, protesting, appealing against today's France in the name of another France, for which they had respect. The only victory that remains is the victory of our honor, unquote, and unquote. The French people, hitherto content to ignore the war when they could, quietly happy to be colonialists as long as they didn't have to think about it, suddenly found themselves concerned. Prime Minister Laniel's car, driving him home after his address, found protests from the street. Send him to Dien Bien Phu, cried some. Shoot him, others yelled, this drawn from Logoval. Asked another paper, quote, who placed de Castries and his men in this trap? Who is officially or unofficially responsible? Who? What party? What minister? What general? Unquote. Yet others blamed the United States, which had failed to come to France's aid. Another paper, Le Figaro, called for reflection, writing, quote, The fighters at Dien Bien Phu died because we lied to ourselves. What these sacrifices demand is an examination of our conscience. Unquote. Bien Bradley of Newsweek found the public reaction less than admirable. Quote, France is stunned and intensely patriotically proud of Dien Bien Phu's defenders. But there is no inclination to unite in patriotism, no desire to avenge defeat. France offers the shameful spectacle of a country almost unanimously looking for someone to blame." Unquote. Lyndon Johnson that same night made a speech at a dinner in Washington. Quote, what is American foreign policy on Indochina? All of us have listened to the dismal series of reversals and confusions and alarms and excursions which have emerged from Washington over the past few weeks. It is apparent only that American foreign policy has never in all of its history suffered such a stunning reversal. We've been caught bluffing by our enemies, and our friends and allies are frightened and wondering, as we do, where we are headed. We stand in clear danger of being left naked and alone in a hostile world. The picture of our country needlessly weakened in the world today is so painful that we should turn our eyes from abroad and look homeward." Unquote. Disingenuous words, if you remember that Johnson had been instrumental in stopping congressional approval for an American intervention in Indochina. And ominous words, if you know that within a decade Lyndon Johnson would be in charge of policy on Vietnam, indicative of an attitude towards the country that would later constrain his choice of action. The officers and men of the fortress had found the strength to fight on through the siege because they believed themselves to be the only thing between France and defeat in Indochina. Their Viet Minh opponents found the fortitude to win that battle after two long months because they believed the same thing. And they were all right. Despite Navarre's communiques to Cogni through March and April, detailing how few French troops were in the valley compared to how many of Ho's and Japs, defeat at Dien Bien Phu finally broke the French will to fight. Laniel and Georges Bidot's government collapsed, and under the new Prime Minister Pierre Mendes France, Paris sued for peace at the Geneva Conference.
I wanted to give all of this time to that mist-shrouded valley in the Tonkinese Highlands because it exemplified all of the problems of the French War for this podcast and for me. The Viet Minh fought the better war for the better cause, but the literature in which they chronicled it is dry and sometimes misleading. Again, for reasons already given, understandably so. The French were only free to be so truthful because they had lost and would never again have to fight in Vietnam. Ho and Jap and all of their people were not so lucky. The French Union forces fought a bad war for a bad cause, but their heroics and what comes across as effortless romanticism and all the rich sources they left to us make it hard to do anything but admire them at least as soldiers. The men on the ground didn't plan the conflict, didn't themselves cause France to go to war, I might say. Who knows what their politics might have been? But in the same way that the Viet Minh would find themselves fighting another war for independence before long against the United States, as soon as they were released, Bijard and Puget and Botella and the rest of the heroic, noble paratroops would head to Algeria to fight another colonial war, involved in massacres and disgraces and fighting all the while against the Algerian brothers-in-arms with whom they had served at Dien Bien Phu. The military philosophy of battalion, regiment, and country, as noble as it was within its own ethics and as appealing as it has been to my romantic sensibilities as against my better judgment and my politics, found itself and its ugly contradictions laid bare there in Indochina and in the unconscionable last gasps of colonial war. is that for Dien Bien Phu. I don't know if I wrestled with my fascination with the French overseas in these past episodes so much as I indulged it, but I hope I wrote in enough caveats along the way to let you know where I stand in the end. I don't have a lot left to say here, which both makes sense and is a mercy for you and for me, given that we're over four hours now. The only thing left is that I'm going to hammer it these next three weeks, and I hope that you folks keep sharing the show and that I'll talk to you soon. Next time, it's Geneva, Skullduggery in Washington, D.C., Ugly Americans, Nigo Din Ziem, and John Fitzgerald Kennedy. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today. Plundering for our own ease and convenience, the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.